My name is Sylvia Lucas. I'm the Deputy Chairperson of the National Council of Provinces. Together with the Deputy Speaker, we are responsible for sectoral engagement and other programs that have been delegated to us. And uh, before we start, I also want to apologize for the Deputy Speaker that he won't be able to attend today because of the National Assembly sitting there busy with the Division of Revenue, or the, I think it's Division of Revenue, sorry if I'm wrong, Shaky will assist me. And uh, they are, in fact, what is in the folks month called the budget, they are busy with the budget, the different votes. So we are joined by members of the National Council of Provinces, and we are particularly joined by a very high-level panelist that we will discuss our issues after this. But for us to start with our engagement or our meeting for this specific day is to request that we take a moment for silent prayer or meditation. Thank you very much. Some of us pray really long. Some of us pray almost for the whole of the morning and at this, or we reflect for the whole of the morning. And by this time, we just thank the higher uh, presence for the for the for the exact fact that we can be here where we are. So I. Unfortunately, earlier we didn't have the names of all the members that will be attending. So it happened that whilst I am chairing the meeting, I am also requested to do the opening remarks because of the fact that, but in, in future, if members can just indicate earlier, we can make sure that we delegate more responsibilities to more members. Now, let me start with a few opening remarks to the members of parliament that are present on the platform, to the representatives of the statistician general, particularly Mr. Neil Roo that has been with us for the past two months, the commission for gender equality, whoever is representing the commission today, one of the, this, uh, the constitutional the institutions that is actually supporting the constitution that they've been with us for the past two months, our different guest speakers. And I've, I've noticed that at least four names have been, have been put in the, in the protocols, Professor Matthews, Professor Hughes, Professor Magano and, and Advocate Magano. And now I've heard Ms. Trudy Nichols say she's an attorney at law. Violence against women, but was institutionally recognized at the very first United Nations World Conference on Women that was held in Mexico in 1975. Then the agenda focused on improving gender equality and ending discrimination. 
It led to the drafting of what became the United Nations Convention on the Elimination of All Forms of Discrimination. This led to the drafting of what became the United Nations Convention on the Elimination of All Forms of Discrimination Amongst Women, or CEDAW, which was adopted by the United Nations in 1979. At that stage, there was not specifically a mention of violence or violence against women because it was still considered as a private matter rather than a public concern. At the second United Nations conference in Copenhagen in 1980, delegates had begun to recognize that there were discrepancies between the rights according, accorded to women in the convention and the ability of women to actually exercise these rights. At that conference, conference a resolution was adopted on battered women and violence in the family. For the first time, violence in the home was specifically acknowledged by the United Nations. It was all also, it was only at the conference of women that was held in Nairobi in 1985 that violence against women in those specific terms was recognized as an obstacle to achieving the stated objectives of equality, development and peace. The implementation of the 1985 resolution included the 1986 expert group meeting on violence in the family with special emphasis on its effects on women. This meeting adopted concrete recommendations with regards to legal reform, police, prosecutors, health sector training, social as well as resource support for victims. It also made it clear that domestic violence was a global phenomenon which was significantly underreported. Distinguished case, within the borders of our region, the South African Development Community, regional documents clearly affirm the principles of women empowerment and gender equality and further recognizes the prevention and reduction of gender-based violence as a catalyst for attaining an environment that is conducive for peace and security. The revised CEDAC protocol on gender and development identifies Gender-based violence is an area of concern and proposes several approaches to addressing this pandemic. The revised SADC protocol on gender and development provides for the empowerment of women, elimination of discrimination and attainment of gender equality through enactment of gender-responsive legislation and implementation of policies, programs and projects. The protocol was revised in 2016 to align with the provision of other instruments such as Sustainable Development Goals, Agenda 2063, and the SADC Industrialization Strategy and Roadmap 2015-2063. Honorable members, delegates, the women's struggle has gone through many phases and evolutionary processes, and during those phases, women have reasonably been optimistic that the adoption of many laws and legislation will once and for all deal with the scourge of femicide. However, South Africa has over the past few years and months cumulatively experienced an intensified onslaught of gender-based violence and femicide, where women and girl children have lost their lives through brutal and atrocious acts of violence. The killing of women have now become more brutal in nature as killers show a blatant disregard for human rights and the rule of law. Today, South Africa is reported to have one of the highest murder rates in the world, 
according to 2015 data of the United Nations Office on Drugs and Crime, it is the fifth highest in the world. Within that, we also have a femicide rate that is five to six times the world average, depending on the year. Gender-based violence and femicide has increasingly received national and international attention, accompanied by urgent calls for stringent measures to mitigate against this social ill. It is therefore pertinent that Parliament, as an activist and people-centered Parliament, robustly engages on intensifying the fight against femicide, particularly when a woman is killed, she's most likely to be murdered by an intimate partner. Intimate femicide is a complex phenomenon, which is a web of associated and mediating factors, which all contribute to its excessive levels in South Africa. It further shows that intimate femicide is an extension of intimate partner violence, and as such is to take into account the unequal gender, gender relations in society as a means to respond to this uh, societal, societal scourge. Parliament hosted its first women's parliament of the sixth dispensation in August 2019. And one of the priority items for discussion during the 2019 women's parliament was the entrenched scourge of gender-based violence in femicide. The 2019 Women's Parliament was also preceded by a national summit against gender-based violence and femicide. And that summit was a platform where His Excellency President Ramaphosa made a commitment to develop a responsive action plan to address issues of gender-based violence and femicide. The President in, 20, in September 2019 called for an urgent joint sitting of both Houses of Parliament to deliberate on the state of gender-based violence plan and to further strategize on what the appropriate response plan should entail to address the scourge. Today, we are here to give effect to the resolution of the 2019 Women's Parliament, where women called on Parliament to urgently enact legislation to specifically deal with the scourge of femicide. We are also here today to solicit the views and the expertise of strategic minds in order to give guidance to the formulation of a piece of legislation specifically crafted for the scourge of femicide. This is in line with our resolve to ensure a zero-tolerance legislative framework for crimes of femicide in order to ensure that perpetrators are decisively dealt with through clearly stipulated provisions in the law. Over the past week, we have seen that the Ministry of Justice is proposing how to make sure that we strengthen the existing legislature, but also that we make sure that we begin to address specifically femicide within our legislative framework. In conclusion, when we report on today's liberation, we will make sure that it is further debated by the peace and security cluster. We've seen the Honorable Sheikh is here as a chairperson of the Security and Justice Select Committee. And we will also make sure that we share the insights that we gather today to inform our deliberations as we advance to make sure that our 2019 Women's Parliament resolution to enact legislation for femicide is accordingly implemented. It is really my sincere hope that today's deliberations will bring us closer to a solution to the scourge of femicide. We can only win this fight if the rule of law is appropriately, appropriately shaped to adequately respond to the grave challenges that we face. With that said and done, I want to welcome all of you to today's deliberations. It is part of a much broader program.
that we are rolling out to make sure that we respond to the resolutions of the very first women's parliament of our sixth parliament. And with that, we welcome all of you and we will immediately give over to Neil Rue for a st statistical overview on the issues of gender-based violence and femicide in South Africa. Over to you, Neil, from Statistics South Africa, and welcome to everyone. Thank you very much, ma'am. If you just open the presentation here. Okay, there you go. Um, Uh, good afternoon, colleagues. Just one second, please. Good afternoon, colleagues. I'm sorry for that. Um, I'm representing uh, the SG um, who could unfortunately not join us today. He's apparently involved in another parliamentary meeting for the day. Uh, so I hope I'll do him proud. And uh, I think we've got a very interesting presentation today. Um, as you know, it's always very, very difficult using um, the kind of surveys that we use in Statistics South Africa to accurately um, get information about uh, violence against women. However, luckily for us, of course, you know, we can uh, get a lot of other information which contextualizes the whole um, issue. Um, the first slide um, was about um, the importance of um, gender equality, um, uh, as it's also mentioned in the Sustainable Development Goals, uh, goal number five. Um, luckily, Ms. Uh, Lucas has uh, provided a very, very good um, in, in introduction, so I'm not going to dwell on this too long, but to say I think um, it's very important to have a look at a target that states that uh, we need to achieve gender equality and empowerment for all women um, by 2030 by eliminating all forms of violence against women and girls in public and, and private spheres. That's, of course, uh, very easy to say, but extremely difficult to do. The next slide's about the definitions of femicide, um, which I used, and I think I can skip that one. I think most of the um, participants in this survey, or in this uh, session rather, has a very good idea, if not a better idea than I have, of what these various definitions are, and also of uh, gender-based violence. And luckily, Professor Jukes is following, um, I think, me a bit later, and she's, of course, a, a well-known um, expert on, on, on this. So keeping myself to um, statistics, I think the best thing to do is to, to start with the population structure of South Africa. Uh, those of you that know the South African population structure quite well would know that um, we have about 51.1% of the total population of female. Now that's of course uh, not necessarily anomaly. Most countries um, have a situation where there are more females than, than males. Uh, although more males are born into society, uh, because of a number of things, uh, female long liberty and also um, the fact that um, males tend to die a bit earlier, you normally get that by the age of 40 or so, the number of women in any particular age cohort um, would exceed the number of females um, in that cohort and also, of course, for the, for the whole population. So there are, in fact, more females and particularly um, that ratio is particularly skewed in higher age groups above 60, 70 and so forth. If one has a look at um, proportions, this is cumulative data or aggregate level data, one will see that um, the highest percentage of elderly um, people or elderly uh, women um, as well is in the Eastern Cape where you've got about 11.4% and then inversely the lowest percentage of, of elderly people are in um, provinces like Gauteng, 
and also probably um, the West, well, in this case, not a Western Cape, but uh, KwaZulu-Natal. Now, normally, the, the percentage of elderly persons in a house in a um, population depends on migration. Um, people who migrate are normally younger um, in the working ages and, and children, of course, and they would then mostly leave behind um, elderly people. Now, if you have a look at a youth population, you'll see that inversely in the um, Limpopo province, for instance, would have the lowest percentage of youth and adults that are people between age of 15 and 59, whilst Gauteng will have the highest percentage, which is no surprise if you um, take into account that those are also magnets for, for migrants in, in society. Now, of course, um, women and of course males are vulnerable um, to um, economic um, problems and to unemployment. And that's particularly true for women, as you'll see in the next few slides. If you have a look at a slide, I'm sorry, ma'am. Uh, the slides are not showing. Uh, are you able to share them? I can unfortunately not do so. I don't have the rights. Uh, Kevin, is that possible to show slides or do we keep to not showing slides? But it can still be emailed to all the members. But it, it, it you can, yes, it's there. Let's, let's see it. You can continue, Neil. Okay, I'm sorry, ma'am. Um, in terms of unemployment, I think it's very important um, to realize that uh, unemployment amongst South African females are considerably higher and has been considerably higher than for um, males in, in society. Um, they were, for instance, using the, un the official unemployment rate, which is about 50.1% uh, as of quarter one of this year. Female unemployment stood at about 32.4%, uh, which was uh, significantly higher than male um, unemployment rate, which is 28.3%. This is out of total of about 7.1 million for, for the country. However, if you have a look at um, the expanded unemployment rate, uh, these are people who, have, um, who are not looking for, including people who are not looking for work as well. Um, you suddenly find that uh, the Unemployment rate is uh, shot up to about 39.7%. And for females, that is 43.4% of females compared to only 36.5% of, um, of males. So it shows that there's a, a clear disadvantage for women in terms of having um, access to, um, to employment. Now, black Africans are the most vulnerable uh, to be unemployed. Um, again, looking at um, the, the official rate that we normally use, um, 33.8% of uh, females um, are unemployed. Um, if you have a look at uh, particularly black females, sorry, if you have a, if you have a look at by, by population group, and that's compared to 8.1% um, of white um, females and about 13% of uh, Indian Asian um, females. In terms of males, uh, the percentages are very similar, although of course uh, slightly lower. And then for um, the female um, unemployment rate, uh, Oh, sorry, I started with, with, with the race itself, but um, essentially the female unemployment rate is about 36.5%, my apologies, um, compared to 31.6% for, for, for males. Uh, sorry, this is an oversight from my side, but the, the, the population group um, stays, in other words, it's much lower amongst the white population group for males and females um, than, for, um, than for black African uh, females in particular. I think this becomes a very important observation uh, in terms of the vulnerability, um, not only to poverty, but also vulnerability to um, 
due to gender-based violence and, and, and femicide, perhaps. The next slide um, looks at women and males, males and females, particularly those in the youth age groups, 15 to 34, that are um, not in employment, but also not in education, the so-called needs, for those of you that like acronyms. Um, as you can see, uh, females in those age groups, 15 to 34, were more likely than their male counterparts not to be in um, either in school education, that's either school or tertiary education or some college, um, than their male, and also not educated, um, as opposed to their male uh, counterparts. Um, between 2019, that's quarter one of 2019, that will be January to March last year, and January to March this year, the percentage of females that are not in education, not in training, have actually increased by about 1.1%, whilst that for males have increased by about 1%. But if you have a look at a difference, you'll see that about 45.4% of females are not in education or in uh, employment, compared to about 38.1% of males. So there's, it seems as if this gap is, is decreasing, um, perhaps over, over time, but it is still a, a massive um, gap. Now, the next slide is just a background slap, uh, slide to um, uh, regarding poverty lines that we use in Statistics South Africa. We normally um, use three poverty lines, the upper bound poverty line, which is about 1,227 rands per person per month. Um, and then the lower bound is 810 rands, and then the food poverty line is 561 rands per person per month. And this is essentially the money that's available for persons um, to um, buy food and, 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 and the bare necessities. If a person uh, has less than this in a particular um, household per capita, it means that they will be considered poor using that particular line. If it's higher than that, of course, you know, um, they won't be considered poor, but of course it doesn't mean that they are not um, still struggling um, to, um, to, to buy the uh, various necessities. Now, this is uh, clearly illustrated in the next slide, uh, which essentially shows that using the upper bound poverty line, which is the 1,227 rands, about 55.5% um, of South African households are considered um, poor. Um, the lower bound poverty line, which is the 810 rands per person per month, uh, we consider about 40% of people uh, poor. And of course, the lowest one, um, we have 25.2% uh, of, um, of uh, persons are, of the population are not considered um, poor. Uh, usually the upper, the lower bound poverty line is the one that, that will mostly be used uh, in this case for a, for a poverty rate of about 40%. Now, I think uh, still talking about the poverty lines and, and the um, headline um, differences, females remain more disadvantaged than males, consistently recording a higher headcount uh, gap and the severity measures at, at a particular time. So that this, this means how severe is the poverty that um, females are experiencing vis-a-vis -vis, um, their male um, counterparts. Uh, what we can see however is if you look at 2006, um, there's been a, a decline, a continuous decline um, from 2006 to 2011. And these are using the um, income uh, living condition surveys or the income ex um, expense surveys. You can see that uh, there's been a decline uh, both in the percentage of males and females, the gap. However, uh, there's been a slight increase from 2011 to 2015, 
uh, although it seems uh, using these two points at least that there's been a slight narrowing of the of the deaf. females are however still more likely to be poor than than the male counterparts at about 41.7 percent uh, compared to about 38.2 percent so it's still um, significantly high but it's also there's still a significant difference between them as well which i think is very important to note of course Poverty to a large extent uh, in a country like South Africa, where most families are dependent on um, salaried income or some kind of monetary income. Uh, poverty, of course, is highly associated and correlated with, um, with uh, unemployment and with uh, employment. Now, 39.2% of female headed households in South Africa did not have a single employed household member. I think you know that's an important statistic to uh, to maybe repeat. Almost 40%, four out of ten households that are headed by females in South Africa do not have a single person that were employed. Now, if you have a look at South Africa, that 39.2% compared to about 19.5% of male-headed households. Now, of course, um, one would ask where the money came from um, for that household to sustain itself, and a lot of it came from uh, social grants and remittances and various other forms of um, in-kind um, payments, either from family members or the community itself, which again probably shows some kind of uh, dependency, I think, um, on the side of those of those families. If you have a look at uh, particularly Limpopo province, you will see that 52.5% of um, households in Limpopo, female-headed households in Limpopo, did not have a single household member that were employed. Uh, compared to only 26.5% of male-headed households in that province. That was coincidentally the highest. And then inversely in uh, the Western Cape is where um, you find that only 21.7% of female-headed households uh, did not have an employed member. And those, of course, are uh, the difference between migrant-sending communities in Limpopo and migrant-receiving communities in the Western Cape. And where you will um, expect to also find a difference in the time for type of uh, households, uh, probably much larger households in Limpopo, looking at extended families, whilst in the Western Cape you might actually have much smaller families, perhaps even um, single-person families or households uh, or uh, nuclear-type um, households. Um, again, uh, building on the previous um, uh, argument regarding the, the, the composition of these households, uh, one will find that nationally about 43% of children lived with only their mothers, um, whilst only about 338 that's about a third of all, um, lived with, with both parents. Now, there are a lot of things to understand uh, when you have a look at this data. Um, I think one of the important things is that households are not should not necessarily be construed as a, as a stable unit. Um, in surveys, we tend to survey households as if it's a stable unit and you count um, the people who are present at a time that you do the survey. Unfortunately, that's the only way to do it. And yet, uh, what this figure actually do show us is that males, uh, are, the fact that males are probably um, less involved in, in the rearing of children, using a, this statistic at least, probably shows you that there is more movement amongst males in terms of migrancy and, and so forth. And, and of course, you know, to some extent, that could also be associated with um, with uh, vulnerability of, of, of women. 
the next um, set of slides that or the last part of the presentation um, will mostly come from the uh, GPSJS survey that we do annually. That's the Governance, Public Safety and Justice Survey, which replaced the Victims of Crime Survey that was done until 2017-18. And there uh, we ask direct uh, questions to, to, to women and to males um, about their experiences of violence and so forth. Again, maybe just a warning here. Um, when you have this kind of survey and you physically ask individuals about experiences of violence, um, particularly intimate pilot partner violence, you should expect um, hesitance um, from, from people to be truthful um, in these questions, particularly if people are very dependent upon um, the income, for instance, or the largest of, of, of that particular partner. So, in fact, many of the statistics that we are going to provide with you could actually, in fact, be much higher. Um, than um, what we are um, providing. So looking at the first slide, um, one would see that about 50% of, um, uh, um, of assaults um, that, that, that people have experienced were committed by somebody close, such as a friend or acquaintance, that is about a fifth, a spouse or an intimate partner, about 15%, or a relative or other um, household member, that's about 13%. Um, they also say that about 29% of assaults were committed by um, unknown people. So as you can see, if you have a look at the, um, the histogram, uh, one can see here that about um, a mob, for instance, is, a, is the smallest, um, but the role of a relative, household member, intimate partner, those are all people that live in your household or very close to you, um, are very, very important and, and quite a large um, proportion of the total um, risk. That, um, that people in households carry. So about a fifth of partnered women has experienced physical violence by a partner. And remember what I've mentioned earlier by saying that this could actually fact be quite uh, much higher uh, given the, the data collection methodology that we follow. Um, we don't necessarily do, um, uh, in, in, the, in the surveys that we do, we don't necessarily do um, in-depth follow-ups because of um, again, the, the collection methodology um, we, we follow. So in fact, you know, one should probably believe it should be um, much higher. Of these um, women that experience physical violence, 21% uh, uh, were, um, were ever, 8% was in the last month. This is physical violence. And then in terms of sexual violence, and this is a relatively wide um, range of definitions, we're talking about 6% of women uh, reported they've ever experienced sexual violence um, and 2% reported they've experienced um, sexual violence in the past 12 months, or in the 12 months at least before the survey. This would be 1819, so this would be from um, April last year to about, um, what's it, April, March this year. Now, the next slide, I think, is um, very important in, in, um, in a number of respects. Um, women who are divorced or separated were more likely than other women to have experienced physical violence or, or sexual um, violence, both over their lifetimes as well as, um, as, as, uh, as otherwise. So those that are divorced, 40% um, of them experienced um, physical violence over their lifetimes and about 16% of them experienced uh, uh, some kind of uh, sexual violence over their um, lifetimes. Now that compared, for instance, to living together, widowed, never married and so forth, it's much lower. 
Um, oh, okay, yes, and, and this data um, is from the South African Demographic and Health Survey. Not um, not all of it is from the um, from the GPSJS, as I've mentioned earlier. Um, I think you know it just shows there's a real need for this kind of, of, of data, and you know this is something that we um, continuously attempt to um, to, to, to get. Um, again, one needs to be careful when you look at these particular categories, divorced or separated, um, in terms of what, because um, these uh, most women in, a, in most women in society has in fact been um, in some kind of relationship before, and divorce and separation rates are quite high in in, in South Africa. Um, however, the associations seem to be extremely clear. Again, data from the South African Demographic and Health Survey um, of 2016, one would see that um, the prevalence of physical violence was greater amongst less educated women than those of secondary education or, or higher. Um, so again, the vulnerability of uh, women with lower education. And as you'll also see in the next slide, um, in terms of wealth, um, seem to be uh, clearly associated. In other words, uh, since the association between <clears throat> Um, lower education and lower um, rates of employment and lower income. It also follows that many of those women um, that had the lowest income were probably more dependent on maybe other household members or other individuals. But regardless of that, they were also at a higher risk of having some kind of um, a partner violence or sexual violence experienced those in, a, in, in their particular in their lives. Um, the slide that you see here. Um, the lowest wealth quantile, 29% uh, of women have ever experienced um, physical violence um, compared to the highest wealth quintile, which is only 12%. Of course, it might also be, you know, that people in the highest wealth quintile uh, were dependent upon, um, you know, their, their spouses for, for income, and they might not have necessarily shared this information, but the information share seems to be quite um, stable across various um, surveys. Now, the ever-experienced partner violence is highest in the Eastern Cape, um, whilst the Northwest province had the highest rates of sexual violence um, ever experienced. As you can see in the, in the Eastern Cape, 6.7% um, of females have ever experienced sexual violence, um, whilst about 31.6% have ever experienced physical violence. Um, and then the figure, of course, for Northwest, as I've mentioned now, is about 11.8% but then also 29.4% for physical violence, which is um, extremely um, high, of course. The lowest coincidentally is in KwaZulu-Natal, uh, which is slightly lower than Limpopo, which is in the second, um, second place. The next set of data does come from the GPSJS 2018-19, uh, which was released earlier this year. And these were regarding questions uh, about whether females felt unsafe walking alone at night in a particular neighborhoods. And as you can see, um, there is actually quite a strong association between males and females. Um, most males and females actually felt um, unsafe, or a large percentage of males and females felt very unsafe in their particular neighborhoods. Um, but females uh, were most likely um, to be to, to, to feel more unsafe um, than their male counterparts. Um, coincidentally, if you have a look at a very safe, you'll see that uh, females were actually less likely, slightly less likely than their male counterparts to feel um, very safe. And this will probably also, we haven't done the analysis here because of space considerations, but this will probably also align uh, 
quite well with um, where people live and also the levels of poverty. I think the second last slide, uh, ma'am and, and colleagues, um, is about the trust that people have in uh, the police and also in, in courts. We've put the time series here that stretches back to 2013-14. In other words, we ask the question, um, how much do you trust the police and how much do you trust the, the courts? And it started, this is from the uh, Victims of Crime Survey of 2017-18. That's the last time that we did uh, the Victims of Crime Survey and we asked in-depth questions on, on that. And as you can see, the trust in courts have actually been declining steadily since 2013-14, starting about 64% and declining to only about 41% by 17-18. Um, whilst uh, trust in police, uh, although it's varied slightly, has actually stayed relatively stable at about uh, 50, 54%. It started at 59% and it declined to about 54%. However, I think the important thing to see here uh, um, are two things. The first one is uh, trust in the courts are, are declining, which is extremely um, unfortunate in a country like South Africa, where the constitution, of course, is um, is, uh, is is king. And secondly, also the gap between the trust in courts and the trust in police are also increasing um, over time, which is also extremely unfortunate. And that was my last slide, um, ma'am. Thank you very, very much. Thank you. Thank you, Neil. You know the, the issue of mute and unmute. <laughs> Thank you very much. I think, I don't know where the state has realized that this process of us are pushing you to bring to us information that we didn't know that you have. And it's, 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 it's wonderful that we know that our institutions are so capable as to lead us with data and stats with regards to the issues that we need to make a success of this process. So thank you very much, Neil, and uh, to States SA for your consistent support that we have been receiving throughout in this process. Uh, we are still continuing and we are going to, 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 to now give to Professor Matthews. She's the director of the Children's Institute from the University of Cape Town. She will be speaking on the social-cultural context of intimate femicide in South Africa. Over to you, Professor, and welcome to the platform. Good afternoon um, to honorable speaker. Um, I can't share my screen. Um, can I ask Kevin to give me permission to share my screen? Whilst Kevin is busy with that, I think you can continue with the presentation. Okay. Um, uh, I've also sent Kevin my presentation, so I'm not sure whether he's going to control it from his side. Um, but let me start firstly to acknowledge that the work that I'm going to be presenting this afternoon has been a partnership that I have been working on with the Medical Research Council um, over the past 20 years or so. And what I'm wanting to do this afternoon is to start off by looking at some of the quantitative data, so our epidemiological work that we've done and our understanding that we've developed on... Um, this is... 
so our epidemiological work, particularly looking at gun homicides and intimate femicide and its relationship with gun homicides, and then also to um, to explore some of the uh, our understanding of alcohol and its role um, in intimate femicides. Additionally, what I also want to do is um, then to going depth into the qualitative work that we've done with men in prison who've killed intimate partners to give us a better understanding of the social context in which um, fem uh, intimate femicides occur in South Africa. Um, Kevin, has he not been able to give me permission to share my screen? Oh, he has. Okay, perfect. Thank you, Kevin. Okay, so if we start thinking about intimate femicide and our current understanding of intimate femicide, what we know is that in South Africa, and as Neil has pointed out, intimate femicide is the leading cause of female homicide. And in fact, what the work of the um, South African Medical Research Council has shown us is that it's double the global um, homicide rate. Um, intimate femicide in South Africa is also what from our work, we have shown that it's the most extreme form as well as consequence of intimate partner violence. And what we have come to show is that it follows the pattern of intimate partner violence rather than overall female homicide. But most importantly is that what we've come to understand that the killing of an intimate partner is not an isolated event, that it's driven by a set of risks. And, and I think that's really important to understand that um, intimate femicides are more likely to occur in the context of gender inequality, where in particular there is a gender hierarchy, and we'll talk a bit more about this later. But importantly, the prevailing social environment and the cultural context, particularly in South Africa, provides the space for tolerance of men's violence towards women, and in fact, for, for intimate femicide to occur. I just want to show you this, and I know Professor Jukes and Professor Abrams will talk more about this later, but what is really important is if we start looking at um, proportion of intimate femicides in South Africa, we have seen from 1999 to 2009 that the percentage of famous intimate femicides have increased, and Professor Jukes will present more recent data, but what's important about this is that in our 2009 work, what we have seen is that overall, the female homicide rates have come down very much in keeping with overall homicide in South Africa. And when we started looking at what are the underlying reasons for this is one of the reasons for this is really around that there was a significant lowering of both gun homicides for both intimate as well as non-intimate femicides. And why I'm talking about this is because it's really, really important that we understand that after the first national study on intimate femicide, there was a big lobby towards um, fire uh, with the firearms control legislation that was introduced. And what we did see with the introduction of the firearms legislation was also a concomitant reduction in the um, homicide rates for women. Um, but what is still important to understand is, is that the lethality of, uh, of guns, and I think that's really important, that although we saw a lowering of intimate femicides in relation to gun homicides, that when guns are used, 
women are more likely to be killed, and particularly with a single gunshot. We also know it's a, a different term that I'm introducing to you now, intimate femicide suicides. This is when a woman is killed by an intimate partner and he commits suicide thereafter. That over 80% of cases of intimate femicide suicides, guns were used, just telling us how lethal guns are in the killing of intimate partners. Turning to alcohol and our understanding of alcohol and its relationship with intimate femicides is really, really important because what we are seeing in South Africa emerging is a bit of a different pattern to what is shown in, in developed settings. So what I mean by this is when we start looking at women who are killed by, in, uh, by their intimate partners, that overall women who are killed have nearly a four times or about a four times the legal limit of alcohol in their blood. And this fits with our overall pattern of high alcohol consumption and intimate interpersonal violence within South Africa. And when we start teasing that out, what we do see is that we have two distinct groups of women. We have sober women who are absolutely sober when they're killed by guns, but incredibly high levels of intoxication by women who are killed by sharp force or blunt force injuries. What this means is there's that interpersonal um, violence and interpersonal arguments happening when this type of um, killings occur. We also see an association between intimate partner killings and high blood alcohol levels, as I've shown above. But what we are seeing also is the mediation of what we call um, mediated by women's unemployment status. And this points to the increased vulnerability of unemployed women in violent relationships relationships to be killed by an intimate partner. And this is really important based on what Neil was telling us about high levels of unemployment amongst women in South Africa and what this means for women in violent relationships, that in fact their risk increases. And I know Professor Jukes and Abrams will be speaking about prevention and particularly around thinking about how we could be preventing um, intimate femicide then. Now I want to turn to, as I've said, qualitative interviews that I've done with men in prison who had been convicted for killing an intimate partner and trying to understand what within their social context being allowed them to in fact kill an intimate partner where many men speak about loving these women. Um, an important aspect of understanding uh, pathways to taking on violent um, masculinities, men speak about their rough and hard childhoods and they reflect on this. Their stories present childhoods with limited positive attention by mothers with some of them boarding on abuse and neglect. Absent fathers or fathers who were not emotionally involved, even when they were around, had a profound impact on how these men viewed themselves as well as shaping their identity. Absent positive role models within the home resulted in many men identifying with antisocial and aggressive models of masculinity outside the home in the community, where men sought affirmation outside their family. And for many of these men, they it led them to be involved in gangs or criminal activity. So if you start thinking about the making of men who kill, what we certainly see is the poor parenting, absent fathers combined with abuse 
organically all have a profound impact on who these men become and their identity. These poor parenting practices often make the men feel quite powerless, inferior, and unloved, and acted as a pathway for them to be involved in violence and crime. And therefore, what we do see is a complex interplay of both social as well as emotional factors that influence the formation of quite violent masculinities, because these are men that's not just violent in intimate relationships, but also violent outside. What we do see is men masculinities, therefore, is shaped by behavior and practices that, de that define the relationships within intimate, with intimate partners. And their violent practices are also linked to the emotional vulnerabilities that's combined with the social norms within our communities. And we don't want to explain away men's behavior by just, you know, the psychological explanations. What's also very telling is what men want from women. And what these men talked about was they wanted relationships that was, and these men <clears throat> relationships were rooted very much in how they saw themselves and what they saw, what a successful man and their notions of what a successful man was. Men wanted to be respected and in turn wanted women that they could respect. So what we do see is at the beginning of these relationships, there was a real ideal, idealized construction and very much a perfect woman that they saw. And we know, you know, at any start of a relationship, we only see the perfect side of people. But as relationships continue, flaws emerge. And you grow with that and you get to understand, the, you know, the relationship and the person. But as flaws emerge, these men became disillusioned and only saw the person and the woman as quite flawed. And what emerged in the narratives was a discourse of betrayal and inability to control their partners. Um, with half of the women who were killed were about to leave or had just left that relationship at the time of the killing. And that's really, really important, particularly for services who are working with women who are separating from their partners, that this is a time of heightened risk. And really importantly, this for, for most of these men, the ultimate betrayal was for women to have an affair. But what's significant here is whether this was real or imagined, men would act on it. And the act of killing in all their descriptions and, and their narratives was really about taking back control of a relationship that they perceive where they've lost control. So just schematically thinking about just how men come to kill intimate partners, what we do have to take account of is the how childhood factors, particularly what's happening in the home, influence outcomes for children. So Thing, intimate partner violence in the home, maternal absence or paternal absence, all influence um, childhood outcomes where there's violence in the home, also in, increases risk for both physical, sexual and emotional abuse. We see conduct disorder, behavioral problems as an outcome as well as poor school outcomes. I'm not going to go through the whole list, but what we do see here is that they, this then influences the outcome for men to take on violent masculinities. 
And what we do want to do is to break the cycle and to, and I do know that Professor Jukes and Abrams will be talking about this and how we can successfully start thinking about breaking the cycle. So what we have learned is certainly that we have to tackle gender inequality and the social norms that underpin this. Childhood adversities play a significant role in the formation of violent masculinities, and this needs to be taken into account both in our response and in prevention of intimate femicide. We've also come to show that gun ownership plays a significant role in intimate partner killings, and therefore restricting gun access is vital. Excessive alcohol consumption in South Africa influences women's vulnerability and its relationship with, as well as with employment. Intimate femicide, and I haven't shown this data, but what we have seen is that it follows a particular pattern of injury as well. And this can assist um, the investigation of cases, particularly where your perpetrators are unknown. So if we start thinking about our policy in South Africa, what we are seeing at the global level is that many countries, including South Africa, have recognized the seriousness of femicide. And this is really critical in order for countries to respond effectively. What we're also seeing is the establishment of specialized investigation and prosecution units as recommended by the Special Rapporteur on Violence Against Women. And Certainly a move in Latin America is where most countries aren't have passed legislation pertaining to specifically to femicide or codified femicide as a crime. And so what we're also seeing advancement is around globally, there's been a move towards the development of national protocols to guide the investigation of intimate femicide. So what does this all mean for us in South Africa? I think we at the important moment of starting to think how we align policy and legislation. We've got the National Strategic Plan on Gender-Based Femicide that's driven by the presidency and signed off by the president earlier this year. And this needs to lay the foundation for policy reform. I do think what we have to consider is how we strengthen our, our policy response to guns as well as alcohol, because both of these are shown to increase risk. We also need to consider how the role of SAPs in the investigation of intimate partner violence, particularly around protection orders, required to be strengthened to prevent intimate femicide. And I don't think we know enough about this. In other countries, we have seen the implementation of serious case reviews. And in South Africa, we have started um, what we call child death reviews, where we're specifically looking at children who have died. And this can strengthen, where we're looking at domestic violence case reviews, it can strengthen our ability to monitor why our current system is failing women and families. But I want to heed us because a legal response is not enough to curb the scourge of femicide in South Africa. It is imperative that we start thinking about addressing, responding and ending femicide holistically and therefore we've got to think about prevention early to prevent the risk for femicide later. Thank you. Thank you very much Professor Matthews. I think we should continue and we will then now request uh, Professor Hughes 
and Professor Ingram to continue with their presentation. Good afternoon, Honourable Chair, distinguished participants, friends and comrades. Thank you very much for inviting me to speak today and my colleague, Professor Abrams. Um, can I request, Kevin, that you put our slides up? And I will just start talking while um, while you commence with that. The presentation today um, is going to address three, four key areas. We want to talk about the prevalence of gender-based violence and femicide, drivers of these forms of violence, the prevention and the rule of law, and then we will share concluding remarks. The um, I haven't seen the presentation yet. It is in your email, Kevin, if you... Um, oh, thank you. That's great. Okay. Um, so it, if you can start the show. So thank you. Um, and next slide. So first of all, I do want to bring us back to what we mean by gender-based violence and femicide, because I think it's really important that the we recognize that the most common form of gender-based violence is intimate partner violence. And we're really talking about physical, sexual, emotional, and economic violence, um, usually perpetrated by a male intimate partner against a woman partner. A subset of this is intimate femicide, and as Shanaz has reminded us all, this is the most extreme consequence of intimate partner violence. It's not a completely separate phenomenon, it's part and parcel, but it's one very, very tragic end of the whole spectrum. We also refer to non-partner sexual violence, rape, child sexual abuse, sexual harassment, and there are other forms of gender-based violence in our society, trafficking for sex, child marriage, ukutwala, and I'm sure there are others. I'm mainly going to talk about intimate partner violence and femicide in this presentation. And um, uh, next slide, please. In the next slide, I want to um, return to the question that was opened by um, Neil um, about the scale of intimate partner violence. And to be honest, I think the conclusion for South Africa is that we don't really know, uh, we don't really have a reliable estimate of the prevalence. In this graph, I have looked at um, a, a measure of women's experience of physical and or sexual intimate partner violence in the past 12 months. And you see on the extreme right-hand side, the prevalence that has come from the South African Demographic and Health Survey that Neil, and that's just for physical IPV, and Neil has just been sharing you some uh, with you some of the data. But on the extreme left of this slide is the prevalence of this measure that was reported by women living in formal settlements in Durban in a study that we have recently conducted over the last three years. And here we see two thirds of women reporting experience physical or sexual intimate partner violence in the past 12 months. And I've given you in the other bars here, the um, prevalence of this measure found in studies conducted in a range of different countries 
under the DFID funded What Works to Prevent Violence Against Women and Girls Global Program. And we see Africa with Ghana and the Democratic Republic of Congo and some countries in Asia, Nepal, um, Bangladesh and Tajikistan and Palestine in the Middle East and Central Asia. The South African prevalence from an informal settlement population was higher than any of them. And if you press again, um, Kevin. Okay, sorry, I had a. What this really shows is that um, we um, really need to drill down and um, not assume that even if we come up with national prevalence statistics, that they will pertain in all populations within the country. We don't know how reliable the demographic and health survey figure is. These surveys have been fairly reliable in some other countries. Um, they tend to underestimate prevalence. But I think the feeling from the community in South Africa is that the figure is probably quite a substantial underestimate. But until we have a well-conducted national survey, we won't actually know that ourselves. So now on the next slide, I would like to hand over to my colleague, Professor Abrams, who will talk about what we know about femicide. Good afternoon, everybody. Hope you can hear me well. So I uh, will continue in the next few slides. I'll talk about the femicide work that we've done in our unit. Um, so we've completed two national femicide studies, a, 99, a, a 1999 study and 2009. Shanaz have um, responded to that. And we're currently collecting data for a third national femicide study, and it will be data for 2017. And we have plans to repeat the femicide study for the current year, 2020, because um, the, um, many, the possibility that COVID conditions could be an impact on femicide, but that's a long way down the line and don't expect any results from that yet. So why do we need to do national studies like this? It's mainly because we do not have integrated systems in place and we cannot identify the relationship between a victim and a perpetrator for example, our quarterly crime statistics cannot provide this kind of data. Now, let me give you just a brief overview of how we do these studies so that you get an idea of what you did out of it. We start off um, by the previous slide, please. Oh, we start off with a sample of mortuaries across the countries, and we identify women uh, that were killed and where post-mortem has been done. We identify the cause of death. We collect data on women 14 years and older. We then move to a second phase, and the second phase is with police. For each of the cases identified in mortuaries, we then get information on the context of the killing. We ask here about the perpetrator and victim relationship, and hopefully we also get information about the prosecution and conviction process, if it did happen. Now, often police do not um, solve all crimes. Perpetrators are not always known or identified. Indeed, between a 99 study and the 2009 study, between 18 and 25 percent of the of perpetrators of women who were killed were never identified. 
So when we talk here, we are talking about an undercount because we can only really talk about um, where a perpetrator is known. So what we're going to do in the next few slides is I'm going to show you some of the 2017 data. We completed phase one. So we've got all the women that were killed in the country. We started with police. COVID has interrupted a bit of that, but we're not doing not too bad. And we have about 22% of the data from police collected. So the information I'm going to show you is preliminary data. So please remember that um, because um, we feel very pretty confident that we, we are seeing a trend and we want to share that with you. Next slide, please. So you're familiar with the statistic, I think. Um, in 1999, we found four women were killed a day by a current ex-intimate partner. In 2009, we saw a decrease, uh, three women a day. And as Shanaz indicated, this was in line with the reduction of overall crime and murder in the country. Male murder also decreased um, in this period. But what are we seeing in 2017? So based on the data that we've collected, we can with confidence say that we are really worried and it suggests that we are seeing between three and four women killed today. Next slide, please. So essentially the, the, the message here is that the 2017 data is telling us that our problem is in fact increase, uh, increasing in the country. Can we go to the next slide? So um, here is a comparison in terms of, um, this shows the proportion of intimate femicides among all female homicides where a perpetrator is now. And here we see a definite increase in trend upwards. In other words, intimate femicide is the leading cause of murder among women in South Africa. And we are seeing a slight increase. The green bar, if you can't see it, is the 2017 uh, date. So 58% of women that were killed in 2017 were killed by an intimate partner. Um, this proportion is much higher than the global proportion. Globally, this sits at 36%. The next slide, please. So the last slide is a slide um, um, that talks about firearm-related murders among women. We saw a dramatic decrease between 1999 and 2009, and Chanel showed that to you. And where we um, and this with the, the decrease, we also um, were able to say was part of uh, explained by the implementation of the Gun Control Act. However, there's been suggestions that there's an increase in violence, in gun-related violence. Now, this data I'm showing you is not the famous data. This is data from the 2017 Injury Mortality Study. This is a study that's led by the Burden of Disease Unit at the MRC. We collaborate with them. We use the same um, study sample at mortuaries. And what they do, they collect information about injury-related deaths. So essentially, they stop at phase one, and we continue with police, but this is where they stop. The burden of disease team kindly allowed me to share this with you. Again, this is preliminary um, data. 
But what it shows us here is the number of women killed, 14 years and older, killed with a gunshot across um, across the provinces, across in terms of how it's shared across provinces. So you can see here that it is provinces that are more populous, urbanized provinces that has uh, more gun-related homicides amongst women. And this is an indication for us that there is something that there is a trend in decrease in gun violence. We will be able to see this more definite once we collect our data. Now, um, I will end here um, and hand back to Rachel. I just want to say we're pretty confident of the data. Um, we started data collection also in the rural um, police stations. So in terms of the 2017 data, we're pretty confident that we are going to see this. And we are just about to start in the larger urban police stations. And we do not expect to see less intimate femicides in the urban city. Um, I'll end there and I'll hand back to Rachel. Thank you very much. Can I have the next slide, please? Well, uh, Professor Matthews has really beautifully set the scene by describing using qualitative data, the processes that um, are set in play to lay the path towards the development of violent masculinities um, uh, based on data where the men have used their violence to kill their intimate partners. What I want to show you in this slide is a summary of overall of what we know about drivers of violence against women. And this is drivers of violence that is both fatal as in intimate femicide, but also non-fatal violence against women. And this slide is based on our review of the global literature of what's known of, of the risk factors and drivers of this problem. And I think it's really important to recognize that centrally placed here is the role of gender inequality, patriarchal privilege and the disempowerment of women, um, which is one of the most central drivers of violence against women. It drives men's perpetration of violence and the disempowerment of women reduces women's ability to take action to prevent, protect themselves from violence, um, including taking action to uh, leave violent partners. And this is centrally related to that key problem that's so well recognized within our field. And integrally, re integrally related to this is the normalization and acceptability of violence of all forms, ranging from violence by parents against children or teachers against children in schools through to violence used by neighbors in the community. South Africa is a science society where the, the use of violence is absolutely normative in handling interpersonal conflict. And in this type of setting, um, uh, it, and these uh, norms around the use of violence are integrally related to the whole problem of violence against women. They're obviously very closely related to gender inequality because the use of violence uh, in order to gain power and control over women is so, so centrally part of more violent masculinities. 
And linked to that, obviously, the power and control to sexually control women that we see enacted through rape. Poverty is very closely related to this. And we've already seen the statistics from um, the Statistics South Africa data, but those figures play out across the world. And we see that um, in households where that are extremely poor, that there is a much higher prevalence of intimate partner violence. And it's also linked to the educational levels of women, as we've seen in the slide, but also of men, which is also integrally related to their poverty. These are structural factors, but we also have very important individual and relationship factors. And just as gender inequality fuels poverty and poverty drives gender inequality, both of these drive the individual and relationship factors. Poor communication in relationship and conflict responses, making it more likely that disagreements or misunderstandings will escalate into the use of violence. Poor mental health and substance abuse. And we've seen that both the poor mental health of women as well as of men and substance abuse by both of them, both are drivers of violence. Shanaz has talked about childhood neglect and abuse and obviously linked to this is children witnessing abuse of their mothers. And these are potent drivers of women's victimization as well as men's perpetration. And the only driver I have here, which we haven't linked to men, is disability. But we know that women with a disability have twice the risk of experiencing intimate partner violence. And we know this from research across multiple countries and settings in the world. And of course, all of these structural as well as individual and relationship factors fueled by armed conflict and post-conflict. What's the relevance of this to South Africa? Well, we mustn't forget that we are a country which is still only uh, less than three decades away from a period of conflict and armed conflict and um, in, still in our post-conflict period. One of the things that happened during that time was South Africa being um, subject to total destruction of families under apartheid, which has had massive impact under-education and impoverishment of huge sections of population. But then linked to that has been the high prevalence of guns. And this again relates to the terrible problem we are still grappling with in this society with the very high levels of gun ownership, whether legal or illegal, which is so important in violence against women, as well as other forms of violence and we must never forget the enduring mental health impacts of um, uh, periods of conflict and post-conflict. And so all of these factors have been shown to drive violence against women. Can I have the next slide? So the big question is, well, what is it that we can do now about this? And what I want to show you is that on this slide, I've listed a set of key inventions on drivers. And these very closely map on to the drivers I presented on the previous slide. Poverty reduction. We know from very rigorous research that actually giving cash to women reduces their vulnerability to violence. And here, I think it's very, very important that we recognize that South Africa already has this massive uh, social grants program um, 
with the funding coming from the government. But it's not enough. It's not reaching um, many vulnerable people within the population. But it's something that we really need to do in order to reduce violence against women and girls is to reduce poverty. We need to enhance school completion for girls as well as for boys. We need to have measures to uh, promote gender equality and action on all forms of violence, including uh, violence against children. When we talk about gender, inequality, gender equality, it's not just legislation on gender equality, but we need to have gender transformative messages and programming running throughout our communities so that we fundamentally change the way in which men and women relate to each other in our society and the subordinate position of women. We must have vigorous gun control. We need to reduce harmful alcohol use. And the Medical Research Council has been engaging with the government quite a lot recently around the issue of harmful alcohol use. But it's really critical that we understand the role of alcohol-fueled violence and a particular role in femicide and the research that we've done on the killing of women, we've only been able to know um, the, the, the blood alcohol level of women and not of male perpetrators because the data wasn't available. But it's reasonably reasonable to assume that where we've seen women with very high levels of harmful um, alcohol use, that their male perpetrators will also have been drinking. And it is a very important problem underpinning femicide. We need to extend funding for mental health services. Shanaz has described how the mental health problems develop, but we know that the conditions of living in poverty, poor education, feeling that you have no um, real opportunities for advancement in life fundamentally undermines mental health. We have to provide services there, and we need to support with programs of lay counselling, as these have been shown to be very effective interventions but these services are needed by men and by women. We need much more vigorous enforcement of protection of children, and it must be linked to parenting programs targeting vulnerable parents. And these are very easy to identify. The poorest parents are very, very vulnerable, and the youngest parents are very vulnerable, and we should be providing support for our teenage and young mothers rather than castigating them for having got pregnant. We need programs to build gender equity and to counter violence that are spread out throughout our communities so that we change social norms around how South Africa thinks about and engages with violence. Next slide, please. So on this slide, I want to provide, I'm providing um, a summary of the findings of a literature review that was conducted last year that looked at all of the most rigorous evaluations that have been conducted across the world um, on interventions that have sought to prevent violence against women and have measured whether they were able to achieve a reduction in violence through um, rigorous study designs. And what we see is that there are actually nine interventions that have been evaluated with well-delivered um, interventions, well-evaluated, um, well-designed research in multiple settings that have shown that the intervention can be effective. And we see here, I've spoken to you about the economic transfers. 
uh, interventions that combine the economic and social empowerment programs targeting women, parenting programs to prevent IPV and child maltreatment, community activism to shift harmful gender attitudes and roles and social norms, school-based interventions to prevent dating and sexual violence, although I will mention that the ones that have been shown to be effective globally have not been delivered through the classroom. They've been delivered through other um, trained um, activists going into schools delivering um, specially designed programs, but they have been shown to be effective. School-based interventions for peer violence, and peer violence is part of that continuum of violence forms that we see across our community. And we know that men who perpetrate, or boys who perpetrate violence against their peers are more likely to perpetrate violence against their women partners. And it's very important that we take this seriously and address it. We know that interventions that work with individuals or couples to reduce their alcohol or substance abuse uh, with or without other prevention elements can be effective. Couples interventions, addressing alcohol or violence, and particularly couples interventions provided, delivered to the, uh, couples who are about to become new parents. And very importantly, interventions with sex workers to reduce violence by clients, the police or strangers through empowerment or collectivization or substance abuse reduction. And we must remember sex workers as a particularly vulnerable population, and they experience extremely high levels of violence. And then there are other interventions on this slide that really have much less evidence. I want to draw your attention to, there are some things that really don't work on their own. Bystander interventions don't work on their own. Um, just giving a brief counseling to pregnant women around risk and safety doesn't work. Microfinance on its own doesn't work unless it's combined with a gender transformative program. And we have very little evidence that um, programs which are only providing information using mass media approaches actually are helpful at all in preventing violence. These may be helpful if combined with other approaches, but they don't work on their own. So next. So what we've got here is a repertoire of interventions that are effective and can be adapted and taken to scale. And so we really can't say that we don't know how to move forward. We have a lot of things that we know we can move forward on in order to prevent violence against women. And I think our real challenge is to raise the funds and go forward and implement these with um, fidelity to the original concepts. Next slide. So what about the legislative contribution? And recognizing that we're particularly speaking to parliamentarians through this presentation, I think it's incredibly important that we remember that most of the drivers of violence need to be addressed through either laws or promoting policies or ensuring oversight to make sure that our well-designed laws and policies get implemented well. And this is an absolutely key role of Parliament. It's not just about making new legislation, but it's making sure that what we've got works and the policies are put in place. Part of the portfolio for action obviously lies in the domain of the criminal justice system. And I was very pleased to follow the um, news reports of the presentation 
given by um, the Honourable um, Ronald Lamola to Parliament last week, and to hear about the new sexual offences courts, and in particular the personal identification and verification application system that's going to be set up in police stations to apprehend persons of interest. And this is critical for us because one of the things that we found so painful looking at the femicide research over the years have been the number of people who are clearly identifiable as the most likely suspect in femicide cases, i.e. the husband or the known boyfriend, who are never arrested. And it is incredibly important that we develop the capacity and implement it within the police to pick people up when they're not living in their own home. What would you do if you knew you'd killed your girlfriend? You wouldn't stay around to wait to be arrested. You'd go somewhere else. And so we need a system that can pick those men up. And I'm really pleased to hear this. I was also really pleased to hear about the forms allowing for online applications for child maintenance. Child maintenance abuse is widespread in South Africa. The non-payment of male men who are fathers of children um, when they're not together and financially supporting their families is a form of um, economic intimate partner violence. We need to recognize this as a form of violence against women. And we need to make it much, much easier for women to actually not just apply, but to get maintenance for their children, for men to be held accountable. Online applications for protection orders is really important because these are not that easy to get, particularly second and subsequent ones, as well as other legislative amendments. And I think that these are really, really important um, interventions in addressing violence against women. And all of the work of the criminal justice system goes to the heart of the problem of impunity that we have with crimes against women in South Africa. And we really need to work in order to reduce this. But we must recognize that our problems are not driven by the fact that there is impunity. Our problems are driven by these fundamental drivers that I spoke to you about and presented in the earlier slide. Our patriarchal gender relations, the widespread use of violence in this country, the grinding poverty so many people face, and the severe levels of mental health and alcohol problems, and poor interpersonal relationships, and the underpinnings of these with um, abuse and neglect experienced in childhood, and our history as a country. And we need to remember that, because we have to unpick it in order to solve our problems. So what must we do? The next slide, please. On this slide, I put together 10 measures that I think we should do immediately to stop and um, to support ending gender-based violence and femicide. We need um, to introduce a basic income grant to reduce the most severe poverty. If we don't tackle poverty, we won't tackle these problems. We need a to continue and to expand our measures and evaluate their effectiveness that are aimed at enhancing school completion, resourcing preschool education, teenage pregnancy prevention, supporting homework, and oversight of the GBE's measures to prevent dropout before matric, and action to ensure the school year this year isn't lost from COVID. We need gun, alcohol, and drug control. Enforcing existing measures an oversight um, to and ensuring that we prevent corruption within these systems, act on illegal guns, act on drugs, 
reduce harmful alcohol use. We need resources for evidence-based prevention programs to challenge harmful masculinities. And I want to draw your attention to the Stepping Stones and Creating Futures program. Stepping Stones has been shown to be able to do this in two separate randomized controlled trials conducted with large samples in the rural Eastern Cape and in the informal settlements of Durban, where it was combined with a livelihood strengthening intervention, Creating Futures. Creating Futures has been really important as a way of enabling us to engage men, bring them to the table so we can talk to them about gender. Because when men are desperately poor and living in informal settlements, it's extremely difficult to talk to them about things that don't relate to their most immediate and pressing concerns, which relate to um, income generation. And so this has been a really important intervention and now has twice been shown in these different evaluations to be able to reduce men's perpetration of violence. And what was really key is we, we looked at the results of the evaluation in Durban and we looked at the men and we were saying, not all men are the same. There are different men. There are some extremely violent men in our society. There are men who are less violent. And there's many men in our society who don't use violence and don't support the use of violence. And we looked at the question as to whether if you differentiate these men into groups, depending on their use of violence and abuse of women, did the intervention have impact on different groups in different ways? What we saw was this intervention particularly changed the most violent men, and it did it because it provided support for the men to work through some of their mental health issues. Absolutely critical that we recognize the role of um, poor mental health that is driving much of the violence we see perpetrated in our society, and we must respond to that, or we will not be able to prevent um, violence against women and girls. We need to resource mental health problems, and we need to um, do this both through the formal sector with psychologists and psychiatrists. We have very few of them in the country. We must have community-level interventions providing psychotherapy uh, through the use of lay counsellors. We need to fund shelters and parenting programmes for vulnerable parents and have more efficient maintenance and protection orders. We need stronger enforcement of existing legislation and judicial review of sentencing. We are setting up our National Council on Gender-Based Violence and Femicide, working to implement the National Strategic Plan, and we must call on Parliament to provide effective oversight to make sure that the um, dream that has been encapsulated in these bodies and in the um, national strategic plan becomes a reality and changes the lives of women on the ground. We need to ensure resources are allocated from the national treasury for measures required for gender-based violence and femicide prevention. And we need to ensure that we have a solid research foundation to guide the prevention strategy and monitor and evaluate its impact. Next slide, please. So to conclude, the prevention of intimate femicide requires measures to prevent gender-based violence overall. Research shows the prevention of gender-based violence before the act occurs is possible in the short to the medium term. There's a very important legislative role in this, but it encompasses measures in the criminal justice system, as well as measures that cut across a much wider set of areas which fall within broadly the social cluster. 
we're confident that after three decades of research on gender-based violence and femicide, that we know what measures are needed for prevention. It's absolutely important, but essential that we roll these out and we have the political support and the funding for this task. Thank you very much. Thank you very much, both Professor Hicks and Professor Abrams is from the South African Medical Research Council. And uh, like I said, Professor Matthews is from the, direct, the director of the Children's Institute at the University of Cape Town. What I just want, I just want to make an observation before we give over to Honorable Sheikh that will be chairing the next session, is that in, in terms of the engagement that we had over the past weeks, most of the presentation is confirming the information that we got from different grassroots engagement, particularly in the province of the Northern Cape and the Free State, where we started, and also the Western Cape, where we started with our processes. So I, I, I must say there is one specific issue, professors, that, uh, that, 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 that came out even in our engagement at the Social Transformation Subcommittee at the ANC level that is led by the Honorable Linduesi Sulu. The issue of possibly bringing in a kind of, 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 of program that will be in the curriculum of skills that will actually enable us to, 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 to actually orient our children correctly. Because in, in effect, what we are seeing with all the information that we are having, we are confirming that we are a very violent society, and particularly violence against women and children and vulnerable people because the issue of disability is also an issue. It's just an observation that I'm making. It's not a discussion. And I, I, I think with now uh, the second uh, session, giving over to, to Honorable uh, Shaida Sheikh, and I just want to remind you, uh, Honorable Sheikh, that Ms. Nichols is an attorney at law and she has actually corrected us that she's not an advocate. Over to you, uh, Ms. Sheikh. And Ms. Sheikh is the chairperson of the Select Committee on Justice and Security, or Security and Justice. Over to you. Thank you, uh, thank you Deputy Chairperson, and good afternoon, honorable members and invited guests. Um, our members, the previous presentations uh, that we received uh, focused largely on the social cultural drivers in society and the need to improve policy programs and legislation in specific areas to address gender-based violence and femicide. Um, the next three presentations that we'll receive uh, will actually focus more on the legislative framework, the gaps in legislation and the criminal justice system. Uh, the first presentation we'll receive is on femicide and the role of law in South Africa. Uh, the presenter is Advocate uh, Magano. He's the chairperson of the South African Women Lawyers Association. Uh, and the topic uh, deals with building a legislative framework uh, towards a zero tolerance, tolerance policy for the killing of women in South Africa. Uh, Advocate Magano. Uh, if I can hand over to you. Thank you very much, Honorable Ms. Sheikh. I want to greet all the guests and I also want to greet um, all the members of parliament. 
and I, I, I want to get straight to the point. I've made, um, I've submitted my, my input in writing. I don't know whether it was situated to all the guests and uh, members. Not sure whether you have the copy, but I have forwarded it. I'm sure you will have it maybe after my input. But it's really straightforward. And um, I have based the input on the national strategic plan, and in particular, that third pillar, the pillar that deals with uh, justice, safety, and protection. I just had to zoom into that, and I allowed myself to be guided by that national strategic plan, seeing that all parties are, are, are encouraged to, to adopt it. So we also, as Saula, have adopted it as a point of departure going forward. And since the declaration signed by the, de the delegates of the presidential summit against GBV and femicide, which was held in November 2018, the fight against GBV and femicide has taken a historic turning point. I say so because for, for once, there they have been a lot of uh, writings, there's a lot, there's a lot of information available out there relating to this issue. And in fact, this, this scourge has is, 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 is gotten government's attention as far back as 1992. But for some reason, things have not seemed to work properly. And you will note in my submission that I zoom into the issue of coordination in particular. And I have also tried to get the, the, the necessary legislation that needs urgent, urgent attention. And I believe this input will assist in that. I did not go and seek for solutions that are outside the, the current framework. So I'm working with the current framework so that we can get urgent, urgent change and urgent recourse in, in terms of how things are being done. And I hope I hope, I really hope that it will not just be some paper. I hope we will start seeing some sort of change. And I think the greatest issue is implementation. It's the biggest elephant in the room. That having been said, we note that uh, the, the, the approach uh, that government has taken is uh, was that of the adoption of the emergency response action plan we have also noted that, and we are fully behind it as well. We also noted the report on ERA that dated 30th April 2020. And I have taken that into consideration as well in my input. And on that note, I think I have also dealt with the issue and I've given it a brief background. I'm not going to dwell much into it because I don't have much time, but I think it will inform it will inform everyone as to how I arrived at the, at, the, at, the, at the recommendations and the proposals that I have made in this document. And in particular, I will then guide you in terms of the relevant pages that I've, I've referred to in the National Strategic Plan. It's page 24. It is, it is the pages that deal particularly with that pillar number three the pillar on, 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 on justice, safety, and, um, and, uh, and protection. I've dealt with that, page 26 as well, page 31, page 31. And I think 
on this one, I'm not going to just guide you to look into it because I think it's very relevant and I have to see to that it gets on record because I think it will be cause for, for debate for those that are interested to engage this document. And I deal with the systematic failure to protect, support, and attain justice that you find on page uh, 30 to 31 of the National Strategic Plan. And in particular, it is it is it, 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 it delves on the report, the VAW report, where that highlighted the uneven geographical availability and distribution of intersectoral responses to GBV, uneven quality and range of services provided to women and girls living in informal settlements in rural areas. Specific, specific groups of women, such women with disabilities and trans women face very particular challenges in accessing services. Suggestion that the failure of domestic violence acts to protect women was because of gender neutral nature, which failure resulted in the recurring theme of a lack of access to essential services for safety, protection, and recovery, which services include timely health care, police response, access to justice, including legal aid center and other information on their rights, safe accommodation, placement in alternative care, which includes shelters, as well as foster care and child youth care centers. Even where basic support services exist, they are typically underfunded, not of sufficient quality, and or lack appropriate trained staff to provide support and care for survivors. All this leads to secondary victimization. Further information available to me which I found to be relevant and alarming at the time of drafting this input is the different types of non-compliance pinpointed by the IPID oversight, which included then I, that, that oversight report was the, was the meeting summary on the portfolio committee on, on police uh, dated 18 August 2015. That is all that I could obtain. I could not obtain the actual reports but I think the summary was alarming enough for me to feel that it was necessary to, you know, to, to, to point it. And I know that this information can be verified by the relevant authorities. This information states that failure to inform, there was failure to inform victims on where and how to access counseling services by the police failure to inform victims on where and how to obtain a protection order, failure to keep a copy of the protection order after it had been obtained from the court, failure to locate victims and establish whether they were safe, failure to note reason why no charge or arrest was made, failure to note the incidents in the domestic violence register, Failure to open a docket and refer the matter to the National Prosecuting Authority for decision to prosecute. Failure to search and seize firearms and ammunition. Failure to take a witness statement. Failure to inform the victim on where and how to access medical assistance. Failure to issue a notice against the alleged transgressor to appear in court. Failure to complete the J88 medical report and other relevant information. 
And further to that, there's also the Soul City report found, that found that there is failure to assist victims in is directly, directly linked to the domestic act, not being fully costed and not placing any obligations on the Department of Social De Development for the provision of care and support services or the Department of Health or National Prosecuting Authority. This points to lack of accountability and responsibility for effectively addressing gender-based violence. Research on social welfare spending points to the poor low spending on GBV, which shifts the burden towards non-governmental organizations for service delivery. Then you look at also the review of the Implementation Act in the 2012 by Tswara found that a substantial percentage of police officers had limited knowledge of the provisions of the Act, more specifically relating to their responsibilities. This suggests that the police may review domestic violence as a private matter rather than a crime. They may actually view it in that fashion. The study found that women withdraw their cases as a result, which is, for me, is one of the key issues that I've, I've dealt with in the, in, the, in, the, in, the, in the proposals. And the result is the inefficient courts, unfriendly court process, long waiting periods due to shortage of staff to process the applications for protection orders. The attrition of rate of rape cases from the National Rape Study in 2012, in which only 542 of a total 3,923 rape cases finalized with verdict and 340 out of the same number with guilty verdict attest to the lack of effectiveness of the justice system. And this is an impediment, <coughs> excuse me, to victims of gender-based violence seeking help and further increases their risk of more violence and even femicide. And according to the Shukuma 2016 report, it was Zella Care Center's compliance audit and gap analysis. Particular groups of women who are extremely vulnerable to violence as a result of intersecting vulnerabilities require specialized response, care, and support. But civil society report on the implementation of sexual offenses, legislation forum, show a clear lack of understanding of the special needs of marginalized groups. The value of shelters is demonstrated in the 2018 study that found that in addition to providing women with emergency accommodation shelters, met women's basic needs, provided physical and psychological safety, meeting much needed care and support for women and children. The study found that 75% of those who left the shelters were living free of their abusers. However, the study also found that challenges with accessing funding often placed rural shelters at a disadvantage, thus limiting their ability to render comprehensive services and that, that, need, that the needs of women's children accompanying them to shelter were not catered for. Now, these are really serious issues, and it points to the structural issues in as far as 
issues relating to shelters and that uh, to Tuzela care facilities. Victim unfriendly remains a problem at many Tutuzela care centers. This contributes to secondary victimization, which is largely due to continued insensitive emergency and South African police service staff. Inadequate counseling rooms to ensure privacy and only half having separate entrances for perpetrators. Many Tutuzela centers are not child-friendly despite representing 60% of the cases. And I zoom into the legislative and, and policy framework to respond to GBV. Well, the National Crime Prevention Strategy of 1996 established the crimes of violence against women and children as a national priority. We have a number of, uh, of, of legislation that has been uh, covered in the um, National Strategic Plan, in particular that Criminal Law Amendment Act, and I've gone zoomed into that Section 51 that prescribes minimum sentences for certain offenses. In particular, I've just extracted the particular offenses that have a bearing to the women and this GBV and femicide, which is murder, rape, incident, indecent assault, sodomy, kidnapping, child stealing, assault when a dangerous wound is inflicted, arson, malicious injury to property, breaking and entering premises with an intention to commit an offense. These are the offenses that have been tabled in section 51. Then there's a criminal procedure, Second Amendment Act 85 of 1997, that regulates the bail, bail regime, the Domestic Violence Act. And I note that there is this contention that the Domestic Violence Act has failed. I do not share that uh, contention. And the reason for that is because, look, it is a good law, but law is as good as it is written if implementation and oversight are not going to be key. And that is where I find there are issues. And I note that they, they, I've, I've heard a, a number of people, I've, I've also read some of the reports where some parties have the view that we need to enact new legislation. I think that the current legislative framework is sound and can be used to further the aims of this project of dealing with GBV and femicide with a little bit of amendments here and there, which I will direct this forum to. What we require are a few material amendments because the justice system is consistently frustrated. And after investigating and, and, and they the, are complete, the case dockets and the, the, the disappear sometimes, then the victims get frustrated and they withdraw charges. And the issue of withdrawal of charges sometimes when I looked at it, it does also frustrate the police, even those police that are dedicated. After having worked so hard, the matter is now ready to proceed for trial because it takes time. There's a period when the, the, the investigations are being done and when that is finally done, and the, the investigating officer is advised by 
the victim that they are no longer interested to proceed with the match. And I think it's a key issue, but I've addressed how I think we can best address it. I will go directly to the pillars themselves. And I note that the aim of the pillar, which is the, 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 the five pillars, they are the pillars that have been um, referred to in that uh, national strategic plan. And uh, I note that the strategic plan has put up uh, that five-year outcomes and has divided the different pillars. I have zoomed into that particular pillar as I have indicated earlier on, and I will take you straight to it. Its aim is to address the systemic challenges and to facilitate uh, access to justice and address the issue of infrastructure. And that is the background to my proposals. That in order for us to be able to deal with the, with the first subtopic, there are three subtopics under that pillar, which is the first subtopic is access to criminal justice. It, it, in order for people to have access to criminal justice, it, it's got to be responsive. If we are to say there is access to criminal justice, it must be responsive, it must respond quickly, and it must be gender sensitive, it must be efficient and effective. Access to justice is directly linked to the police ability to respond to every call for help. And to be GBV sensitive means that you need people that are alarmed to the pandemic. That is, the police must be alarmed to the pandemic. They must understand the trauma coupled with the call. And they must have the necessary counseling skills and medical intervention required in order to deal with GBV. They must offer help in a manner that upholds the rights to privacy and affirm the dignity of the victim. The police do not have the training that can make them to be sensitive to the cause. And in order to bring the sensitivity to policing, it is an imperative that each police station be equipped with the services of a social worker. Even if it's a police person, but the person has got to have that kind of training of a social worker to be able to address the issue of sensitivity. This can also be achieved through aligning, alignment with the Tutuzela centers. And we need to have the Tutuzela centers in all the police stations. It's, 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 it's a bit of a challenge now because there are very few Tutuzela centers. I think there's about 53 right now in the country. When we have district courts of a plus about 500 magisterial districts in the country, so it's 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 grossly inadequate. I mean, the number is just too low, and to think that the Tutuzela Center, um, it was in 2013 that Tutuzela, if I'm not mistaken, the Tutuzela Center centers the report was adopted. So the issue also and the challenge of the centers is they need to be properly equipped with administration staff 
My apologies to interrupt. Um, how much of time do you think you need? No, I need to just, it's not much time anymore. I'm, I'm about to wrap up. Okay. I'm, yes, I'm, I'm not going to go through okay. everything. I just want to zoom in because I think this is the part where that is most important because this is where I make the proposals. We need that uh, the to centers to be equipped with administration staff, medical intervention, or, or nurses, and or a, a doctor or a nurse on call. I think I've dealt with that in 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 in, in the report. I will not go delve much further into it. I think I've mentioned other things that can 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 be looked into in the in the document that are forwarded. And the centers must also be able to divert women who are not in a position to return to their, to, to their dwelling places. They must be able to keep them overnight, but the facilities must be of good quality. It cannot be that, uh, yeah, you must, it must cater for the broader um, levels of all women, because we know that even the richest and the poorest women, they all are, 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 are victims of gender-based violence. And for the police to be effective and efficient, guidelines must be aligned accordingly and be implemented and monitored by an independent oversight body. I've mentioned the independent oversight body because currently I don't see that being factored through. I see IPID doing the work, but it's not equating to any successes. I've, 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 Propose that maybe that gender-based violence on femicide and cancel that we are all waiting for may be well placed to deal with that issue. And it must not just be lip service. That's where the problem is in this country in general. It's the issue of oversight and accountability and implementation. I think if I may stop you there. If I may stop you there, because I think uh, what we will do, uh, we'll ensure that uh, the document you're making reference to is made widely available. Um, I know you're making various references in your report, uh, which I think would be quite informative uh, in terms of uh, addressing the failures in the legislative framework and procedures, uh, which are needed to ensure safety, care and support services uh, to victims. Um, and you are the proposals that you're making. I'm sure we need to further look into them uh, as as we move forward with trying to look into legislation around gender-based violence and femicide. Um, thank you very much. Uh, thank you so much. Uh, our members, we'll move on to the next uh, presentation, uh, which is on law and the administration of justice in South Africa. Uh, the presentation is by Ms. T. Nichols, uh, who's an attorney uh, from the South African Women Lawyers Association. Her topic is around identifying gaps in current legislation that weaken the state's ability to effectively respond to the surge of femicide. Uh, Ms. Nichols, over to you. Thank you, Honourable Member Shirk, and good afternoon to all the other Honourable Members and as well as to my colleagues. Um, I'm going to be speaking very briefly about the 
the gaps, identifying the gaps in current legislation that weaken the state's ability to effectively respond to the scourge of femicide. Um, and I'm going to be quite brief, and the reasons will become apparent as I speak. Like the speaker that has just spoken before me, Advocate Magana, I've also provided a copy of my submissions, and I'm sure those will be distributed to everyone as well. Um, <clears throat> just to start off, we can all accept that violence against women and children in South Africa is now more than a crisis. It is an epidemic and it is a scourge. Gender-based violence, and in particular, domestic violence, is usually the precursor to femicide. Um, and as it's been referred to today, intimate femicide. So curbing and eradicating gender-based violence will in turn reduce the incidence of intimate femicide. South Africa, however, has a very progressive and a comprehensive legal framework which addresses gender-based violence. And this framework includes, amongst others, the Domestic Violence Act, the Sexual Amendment and Other Related Matters Act, um, the recent regulations relating to sexual offences courts, the Criminal Procedure Act, the Criminal Law Amendment Act, various directives and instructions on conducting forensic examinations of survivors of sexual offences, the Protection from Harassment Act, the Service Charter for Victims of Crime, the National Policy Guidelines for Victim Empowerment, the Amended Code of Good Practice for Sexual Harassment Cases, and the Promotion of Equality and Prevention of Unfair Discrimination Act. This legal framework is underscored by our, our Constitution and very specific rights in the Bill of Rights, such as the right to equality, the right to human dignity, the right to life, and the right to freedom and security of the person, which includes the right of everyone to be free from all forms of violence. Now, the scourge of gender-based violence and intimate femicide has been brought into the spotlight repeatedly in the past few years. NGOs, CSOs, faith-based organizations, and other institutions and organizations which provide assistance and support to victims and survivors of gender-based violence have all provided reports, submissions, and research studies to government setting out the challenges faced by women in accessing the protections afforded by the existing legislation, coupled with recommendations to address these challenges. What has emerged is that the existing legislation places the responsibility on various state organs to ensure that the victims and survivors of domestic violence and abuse are able to access all state institutions in order to, in order to seek protection in a way which is efficient and speedy, compassionate and helpful, and does not result in secondary victimization. These state institutions are, amongst others, the South African Police Services, various health services, the courts, particularly the family courts, which includes the various clerks of courts and magistrates, and centres like the Tutuzela Care Centres. The failure state institutions to provide victims and survivors of domestic abuse with the level of service and assistance, which the legal framework mandates is well documented, as are the recommendations in relation to, for example, education, training, and monitoring to address these failures. The results of these is that victims and survivors continue difficulty to access the, the criminal justice system are that victims are discouraged to report cases to SAPS or they tend to withdraw their cases because of the secondary victimization which they experience. Um, victims of gender-based violence experience difficulty navigating the court system 
coupled with under-resourced courts and staff shortages to process applications for protection orders, the long distances with which indigent victims have to travel make accessing the courts or seeking legal assistance prohibitive, and victims of gender-based violence are subsequently killed as a result of intimate partner violence, which we now call intimate femicide. What is also well known is that the South African Human Rights Commission, amongst others, have already concluded that the failure to establish mechanisms and accessible services for effective information, rehabilitation, and reparation for victims of violence, and to provide adequate budgetary and other resources for the implementation and monitoring of actions aimed at preventing and eradicating violence against women lies at the heart of the failure of the existing legal framework to curb and or eradicate gender-based violence and domestic violence. The costs of implementing legislation, policies, and associated plans are insufficiently accounted for, resulting in inadequate funding. The lack of adequate funding has resulted in a constrained resource environment with a shortage of skilled staff and inadequate data collection, monitoring, and evaluation of state programs to address gender-based violence. So I don't intend to repeat the recommendations which have already been received and acknowledged by government and which appear in various plans and strategies intended to address the challenges and difficulties which have already been identified. Um, some of these recommendations have already been implemented. For example, we see the regulations for sexual offences courts, which have been rolled out. In addition, we see the recommendations which were made in the recent parlor court judgment have been implemented in the recent Correctional Services Act. So I only propose to highlight those recommendations which are not reflected in these plans and strategies and to propose new recommendations, and they're not that many. Um, as a prelude, I think it's quite opposite to quote retired Justice Edwin Cameron, whose view is that we should recognize that the sole inhibiting institutional response to criminal conduct is the certainty of detection, the certainty of follow-up, the certainty of arraignment, the certainty of prosecution, and the certainty of punishment. The problem with our legal framework and our justice system at the moment is the lack of certainty. So in relation to domestic violence, these are the recommendations. The first one is section 17 of the Domestic Violence Act sets out of various offenses in relation to the contravention of this act. Subsection 17A provides that any person who contravenes any prohibition, condition, or obligation, or order in terms of section seven of the act shall be guilty of an offense and liable on conviction to a fine or imprisonment for a period not exceeding five years or both such fine and such imprisonment. Section seven, subsection seven, relates to the court's powers in respect of a protection order and provides for inter alia peace officers to accompany complainants to specified places to assist with arrangements regarding the collection of personal property. This is in subsection 72B. And um, it also provides that a court may not refuse to issue a protection order or impose any condition or make any order which it is competent to impose or make under the section merely on the grounds that other legal remedies are available to the complainant. This is found in subsection 7.7. 7. 
So this provision needs to be utilized and enforced regularly. Police officers and magistrates who fail to comply with their obligations should be held to account in terms of Section 17, and this should be enforced rigidly. The second recommendation is Section 18 of the Domestic Violence Act is the specific section which obliges prosecutors to prosecute complaints and offences in terms of Section 17A. Also, Section 18, subsection, in terms of Section 18, subsection 4, it is an offence of misconduct which must be subject to a disciplinary hearing where a member of the South African Police Services fails to comply with any obligation imposed by the Domestic Violence Act or national instructions issued pursuant to it. This section should be enforced strictly and consistently in relation to all complaints by victims and survivors of gender-based violence in relation to service and assistance received from members of the South African Police Services, which falls short of the requirements and obligations imposed by the Domestic Violence Act. The investigation and enforcement of these complaints must be conducted by or overseen by an independent body to ensure accuracy of data, transparency, consistency, and accountability. The third recommendation relates to the consideration that the fact that the majority of these cases are heard in the regional courts. Sorry. Consideration should be given to the amendment of Section 18 of the Domestic Violence Act to make it an offence of misconduct for clerks of court, magistrates, prosecutors, court interpreters, social workers, and any other state employee who fails to comply with any obligation imposed in terms of the Domestic Violence Act. Consideration should be given for there to be a separate independent complaints and investigation body, which is tasked with investigating complaints against these state service providers with the appropriate enforcement mechanism and authority. The additional benefit of having an independent body will be the acquisition of accurate data, transparency, consistency, and accountability. So these three recommendations relate directly to um, domestic violence and means of ensuring that the Domestic Violence Act is actually implemented by bringing those who are tasked with implementing the Domestic Violence Act to account for their failures to actually implement the Domestic Violence Act, because the recommendations that have been repeated consistently through the years relate to education, training, um, and the like, and those recommendations have been followed through. But what is clear is that those recommendations and the implementation have still resulted in consistent underperformance in relation to the service which victims and survivors of domestic abuse are receiving by these state service providers. In relation to intimate femicide, the, recommend, the first recommendation is that intimate femicide and, femini and femicide should be criminalized as a separate offense. This will assist with statistics and data collection in relation to the commission of this crime, which in turn will improve assessments of targeted interventions to reduce this crime. The second recommendation is that currently the majority of these cases are heard in the regional courts. There is no automatic review process for judgments or sentences from the regional courts. 
Section 302 of the Criminal Procedure Act only provides for an automatic review of sentences where in Australia the accused is unrepresented. Um, section 304, subsection 4 of the Criminal Procedure Act provides for the review of sentences imposed by magistrates where either of the parties, that is the prosecutor of the defence, applies for the review of such sentence or the regional chief president requests a review of the sentence to ensure that it is in accordance with justice. So in order to ensure consistency in the administration of justice in relation to the adjudication of intimate femicide, recommendations have already been that members of the judiciary, including magistrates, receive specialized training and education. As a further recommendation to ensure consistency with sentencing, it is recommended that all sentences for convictions of femicide, once it is criminalized, when such matters are heard in the regional court, must be subject to automatic review by two judges of the High Court of the local division having jurisdiction. Section 302 of the Criminal Procedure Act can be amended to accommodate this additional automatic review with timeframes imposed for the submission of the review by the regional court and finalization by the judges of the High Court. Additionally, regional court trial judgments are usually handed down extempore. That means that the judges hand down their judgments immediately once the matter is finalized, and they don't, as a matter of course, hand down written judgments. They're a centralized database of regional court cases and judgments does not currently exist. The automatic review process for sentences for convictions of femicide will then also assist with data collection um, and statistical database. Um, the reason these are the two recommendations for intimate femicide. And the reasons why these are the recommendations is if one has regard to the recent reports in various newspapers over the past few years, you'll see that most of the problems relate in the court system once the matters eventually come to court as in relation to the inconsistency with regards to sentencing and also with regards to the manner in which magistrates are handling matters. So for example, in Pinetown in 2017, there was a matter of intimate femicide where the court acknowledged the matter as being such um, and handed down a judgment of 12 years as opposed to 15 years. The reason for this being that the compelling and substantial circumstances that warranted the reduction of that was because the accused was a first offender. So this is a deviation which might not be appropriate in these circumstances. Um, in addition, one also has seen in the news recently the various newspaper reports regarding the magistrate from Amlazi from the Sexual Offences Court um, and the mm. fact that none of her judgments went on review for a period of seven years because the regional court president didn't think fit to do so, none of the parties in her matters, be that the prosecutor or the defence, sent her matters on review and there was no requirement for any of the sexual offences matters to go on automatic review. The results was an alarming um, travesty of justice where you had rape cases and these sentences were 
suspended sentences or uh, alarming three years or two years or as they went. Those were only in relation to two or four that have been reported, but now they've still been investigated. So there needs to be additional oversight for matters relating to gender-based violence, sexual offences and femicide. Um, and this will have a dual purpose of making sure the sentences are appropriate and then also assisting with the collection of data, which in turn will ensure that the targeted interventions are actually being targeted and we can see whether or not um, all these interventions are succeeding or not as the years go by. Thank you. Yeah, th thank you, uh, Ms. Nichols. I think as you suggested, uh, obviously we would make your documents also widely available. Um, and uh, I know you make very specific recommendations, um, especially in relation to gaps in existing legislation. And uh, I think that probably needs, uh, would need further discussion and, and study as well, um, as well as new areas that need to be focused uh, on in legislation. Uh, but I think uh, probably in the discussion session, if there are other questions that people would want to raise around, uh, we would allow them to. Um, our members, we're actually running uh, yeah, out of time. Um, I'm going to call on our last presenter, um, who's Mr. B. Kumalo, uh, who's the strategic advisor from Songhe Gender Justice. Uh, the topic that uh, will be addressed is uh, Femicide through the rule of law, uh, addressing weaknesses in the criminal justice system. Uh, Mr. Kumalo, uh, if I can hand over to you. Mr. Kumalo. Mr. Kumalo. Hello, thank, thank you, Chairperson. Uh, uh, honorable members, uh, my comrades from civil society. Uh, I will make your life easy, uh, Chair, because I have a few slides to share. Uh, my colleagues have covered a lot of ground uh, on the issues that I wanted to flag. Um, we obviously are dealing with a, a serious matter of uh, gender-based violence in South Africa and femicides, and it's impacting on a sizable uh, populace of our country. And we note as a civil society some of the weaknesses in the system, and I just want to cite a few because my colleagues, I think, have uh, 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 indicated uh, several of these uh, in the in the presentations that they have made. <coughs> I <coughs> sorry, my slides are a bit mixed up here. As indicated, um, we all agree that uh, gender-based violence is very chronic in South Africa. It's five times above the average, and um, it, it is indeed something that requires a serious challenge. With respect to um, our policy and legal framework, um, I agree with uh, Advocate Magano that uh, we don't lack um, policies and the law. 
Uh, we have the Constitution, which is very strong. We have the Domestic Violence Act, which is very comprehensive. We have the criminal law, uh, sexual offenses and related matters, which has been referred to by uh, Ms. Trudy Nichols. And then we have now the new policy on the National Strategic Plan on Gender-Based Violence and Femicides. Very important instruments uh, that indeed are seeking to provide a, a meaningful response to the challenge that uh, we are facing. The challenge then is wh why are things not working as they should? We, we note that uh, from Sonke General Justice that uh, much as we have these progressive laws, the implementation remains very poor. There are still lots of gaps uh, either um, in the uh, police, in the investigations, or in the prosecution of these cases, uh, which continue to undermine access to justice uh, for women uh, in our legal system. Um, we note as well that there's lack of confidence in the justice system uh, currently. As uh, one of our partners uh, have indicated in one of their research, we know that only one in nine rape cases actually are reported, uh, which is really a serious, serious concern because what happens to the other eight that don't end up getting reported? And we also know that there are high levels of impunity. Most of the cases that in fact actually do end up getting in court, we know that only 8% of those reported cases result in prosecution and even less result in conviction. There's also the fear of secondary victimization by survivors because of how they are treated in the whole value chain of the system, either from the police station or by uh, 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 the, 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 the prosecution in the courts, where sometimes uh, we, we sense that either the prosecutors are not experienced enough to manage these cases or do not have the necessary sensitivity to understand the context of uh, sexual offenses. And, and so the legal justice system uh, is also not the only form that women then tend to when they seek um, resolution of the challenges that they face. <clears throat> there are many women who would go and report cases and then go and withdraw them uh, the following week. And many of them will tell us that they don't necessarily want their partners or their husbands to necessarily be thrown into jail. They simply want the violence to stop. Now, what are the mechanisms that we have in the country that can help us arrive at um, that situation where these matters can be satisfactorily resolved such that women don't get exposed furthermore to, to violence? We see a lot of course of responses from civil society in terms of advocacy mechanism to hold uh, the criminal justice system to account, to hold uh, men to account through various means, as uh, members will be aware, the men are trash, hashtag, which uh, is out there in the open, intended really to call attention to the issue of responsible uh, manhood uh, in our country uh, in responding to many of these challenges. And a lot of these efforts by civil society, I think, have paid off, as we've seen, of course, with the culmination of the national strategic plan. 
But that plan is good as it can be implemented because as we have indicated, plans by themselves don't implement themselves. We need therefore to ensure that uh, the implementation is done and done properly to ensure that we realize justice uh, for, for, for women in South Africa. I want to then jump to um, my last slide, Chairperson, where I've basically outlined some of the cases that for us are an example of some of these challenges that I'm pointing out uh, to this meeting today. The issue of the magistrate in Wazulu-Natal, I think uh, Advocate Nicholson has handled it uh, perfectly. We have a case of young people in special schools. There are about three at the moment that we're dealing with at Soke who were raped and sexually harassed in school. And there are failures in terms of how the school first responds to these cases there are failures by the Department of Education, how they, these cases are mishandled. And thirdly, there are failures at the police level, how these cases, many of them don't even end up seeing the light of day in court. Because many of these schools are special schools for children with uh, mental health conditions and, and police are prone uh, to uh, uh, not want to prosecute these cases because they don't have the kind of speciality to can be able to manage these cases in a manner that can help these families to get justice. <clears throat> but then what does it mean for these children and their families? Uh, we have a case in Tembisa of a young woman who's autistic, who was gang raped by other students during school hours in school, and it was caught on camera but both the department is washing their hands of this case and the police are you know, dilly-dallying around and the family are feeling let down by the criminal justice system because they have not yet had access to uh, justice on this matter. We have a case of Ms. Pindelo Matutu who used to work for Pick and Pay who was sexually harassed by a manager at Pick and Pay. Her case was managed by senior managers at pick and pay, but up to date, she has not received any reports of those cases. And eventually she was pushed out of pick and pay. And she went to all the legal uh, systems, uh, the CCMA, the matter ended up in the uh, labor court. But on technicalities, Ms. Lindelwa has not received justice. So she's asking the question, what, where else should she go when all these instruments that have been put up in the country to help women like her go, and those are failing her. We are aware, of course, that there's uh, the ILO Convention 190, which our country contributed to its crafting, which could be resolving some of these issues because it's far-reaching and comprehensive to cover cases of sexual harassment in the workplace. And yet there's a delay in our government to sign up to this convention. And these are some of the gaps that I think we need to close. And then there's the famous or infamous case of Cheryl Zondi, the Omotoso case, which is happening in the Eastern Cape, where lawyers abuse their, 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 their role, in my view, because as we all know, the manner in which the, the, the young woman was being cross-examined leaves very much to be desired. But what is more concerning for us is why is it that the prosecution was not objecting to the kind of questions that this woman was subjected to. 
such that it required the judge in that case to make interventions and provide guidance um, and, uh, on how these matters should be addressed. Now, we need really to look at the system in this instance. Why is it that we can allow women to be victimized even in court after they've been abused, such that it throws the whole system around where many women have been afraid to come forward and report as they see the spectacle that happens in courts by defense lawyers thinking, do we want to go through that and be embarrassed in the whole country to be asked how long was uh, you know, the, the genital of the, of, of the person who raped you? you know, so all these matters, I think, require attention in terms of how we can strengthen our response in the criminal justice system. And then there's a case of Ms. Ayanda Simelane in Springs, Guatemala, who was stabbed and thrown in the felt, allegedly by a boyfriend. The case was investigated for two years and the family was given subpoenas to appear on a particular date and the matter was set down. On the morning when the case is supposed to start and they are told, no, the case has been withdrawn. Raising all sorts of questions. Why should it take two years for the state to investigate and even enroll a matter and subpoena witnesses to appear to discover when the case is supposed to start that actually the case is withdrawn? You know, these are the issues that make people lose confidence in our criminal justice system. The last case I want to refer to, Chairperson, is a case of a woman who was harassed by a pastor in Mamelodi, who was stalked and the man kept following her threatening her on, on WhatsApp messages and, st and stuff like that. The woman went to the police station, reported the case, and the police shockingly says to her, go and find out where he stays so that we can save him. You know, now how, 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 uh, how is a perpetrator, uh, I mean, a, a, a survivor of sexual harassment and stalking expected to go and investigate where her perpetrator is staying but this woman, because this man was persistent, worked with her friends, located where this man stays, and went back to the police. The police issued then, and, I mean, helped her to get a protection order. And this man continued and came to her place, came to work, and she phoned the police. He was arrested. But guess what, Chairperson? The very same day that he was arrested, he was allowed out on a, a free bail and he went back to her, and now he's threatening to kill her. And this woman has now come to Soccer Agenda Justice to say, can you please help me? Because I'm now desperate. I don't know where to turn to. I don't think we should allow these kinds of cases, situations, Chairperson, where women feel that they've got nowhere to turn to when we have a government and we have a criminal justice system. So we need really to look at all of these provisions that are there and close the loopholes, because unless we can do that, we continue to allow perpetrators to continue to violate women and expose young people to violence with impunity because they know they can get away with it. Those are just the few points that I wanted to make, Deputy Chairperson, because I think a lot has been covered by my colleagues. Thank you. Uh, thank you very much, uh, Mr. Big Malo, for, for that input. Um,
I think uh, it was quite informative and you, you really look at those harsh issues, uh, especially in terms of the inefficiencies in the value chain of treatment of victims of sexual abuse, gender-based violence and femicide, and the failure of the criminal justice system to deal with such offenses. Um, all members, uh, I'm going to open up for for discussion uh, and or comments and or questions that you may have. Uh, if you, if you have, can you please give me an indication whether you have any questions or comments that you would like to make? You you may use the raise the hand function. Honourable members. I think I have several Christians. Um, and then I see uh, Ms. Van Staden. Okay, I'm going to allow uh, Honorable Christians to, to make a comment or ask any question she has. Um, and then I'm going to go back to all the presenters. If you have any closing comments you would want to make as well as respond to Honorable Christian. Um, I think I'm being raised. Uh, okay. I'm going to follow this then. Uh, I'll ask Honorable Christians to, to, to raise her, her point. Honorable Christian. Thank you very much, Honorable Sheikh. Um, I actually just have a comment. Um, I just want to say thank you for the presentations and um, the huge amount of work that has gone into, um, you know, into the presentations and uh, the work done by the organizations and the universities in highlighting the serious plight of the women in South Africa. Um, and also, you know, just to comment that um, after all these years, it's still... You know, the same things that women are burdened with, namely, you know, the problems of gun ownerships, um, male childhood adversities, drugs, poverty, and so on. And I think a lot of important information was given through. Uh, and I think it's something that we really need to look at and build on. Things like, you know, uh, empowering our women's shelters um, and just generally assisting communities, I think, you know, we do too little advocating in our communities and we speak too little about it. And it's platforms like these that I think is going to empower women and empower our communities. So I just really want to say, you know, um, I have a great appreciation for the work that has gone into the presentations delivered. Um, you can see that um, people are really aware of the plight and um, just to continue the work and for us to continue the discussions that are being held here. Thank you very much, Honorable Sheikh. Uh, thank you very much, uh, Honorable Christians. Um, Ms. Van Staden, um, if you have a point to raise, please do so. Yes, yes, thank you. Um, I'm head of the clinical services at FANSA Western Cape, and we have been running the longest standing Men Stopping Violence group in South Africa, which we're very proud of. We've had lots of research done. So I just want to briefly say it connects with um, 
what I'm, I'm just very quickly with their names. Matthew had said regarding her research on the, the men in the prisons, as well as what um, Prof. Dukes had said about also couple work and working with families. So what I want to propose, I think there must be more often, um, instead of the, the protection orders that they just violate, I think it must be more, I also previously worked as a probation officer and I also um, work with women, the social workers in the shelters. So I have a perspective both from the, the male side and the female side. And um, that they, they rather need to, to open uh, criminal procedures and as suspended sentences, we know the women don't want to, their, their partners to be put in the prisons. They, you know, they, they're dependent on them. But if they um, are more referred to, uh, and it has definitely saved women's lives. We have seen this, you know, we've been running this for, for over 20 years. So there's there's a lot of the other recommendations um, that, that I'm in agreement with, but I don't think, um, yeah, maybe the the the, uh, the referral to um, to one of the other groups that have been similar to this, um, but that that should also be a consideration. And a lot of the men coming in there, they are survivals of childhood abuse themselves, and so it's holding them both accountable for what they're doing, as well as working with and processing for them to change their um, their violent behaviour. Thanks. Thank you, ma'am. Uh, is it Bainon? Mr. Bainon? Or Miss? Hi, thanks, Chair. Uh, it's Miss Bainon. I am from the Western Cape Provincial Legislature. Um, and I also co-facilitate uh, public engagement uh, with specific respect to sectoral work. I just wanted to say thank you very much to each of the presenters um, I think that, you know, a lot of uh, work was put into these presentations. Uh, they're research-based, context-driven, and I think that's really important. I just have two questions, uh, Chair, if that's okay. Just with respect to the first uh, presentation, which was a statistical overview, I'm not sure if that presenter is still uh, present in, in the virtual discussion, but uh, he mentioned that in terms of definition or interpretation around sexual violence, uh, there are varied definitions and interpretation, and I'm just trying to understand what exactly those are. I do think one of the mistakes we, we do make in our respective roles and spaces is to only visualize uh, that specific form of violence in one particular way. So I just wanted to, you know, query what then is, you know, what what exactly is being referred to. I also just want to find out in terms of those statistics and that research done, when we are making use of the word woman, are we intersectional uh, in our definition and understanding with respect to orientation one? And secondly, also with respect to sector Um I see someone in the chat did mention, you know, issues facing, for example, sex workers. Um, so I, I, I just want you to understand that. And then lastly, I just wanted to say that I, I think, uh, you know, uh, Mr. Kumalo made a very good point around sexual harassment. Um, and I know there was a comment earlier on around institutions of higher learning. Um, I, I think that many of our public institutions 
don't necessarily have advanced uh, sexual harassment policies. Um, they're either, you know, not defined, they're not clear in terms of what are the desired outcomes, you know, when and where that happens. They're outdated and so on. I mean, the list is endless. So I just wanted to get an understanding um, as to, you know, uh, what, what then should be done. Um, because I think it starts even with our own public institutions, you know, in the legislative sector, you know, in terms of defending uh, our women public reps and officials working in the space. Um, and, and then, of course, into broader society across sectors. So I just wanted to register that. But thank you so much. Uh, this has been very informative. Uh, and definitely some of the lessons will, will be taken and applied, I think, even within here, uh, within the administration here in the legislature. So thank you so much. Thank you. Uh, Ms. Khrodbom. Ms. Khrodbom Griselda. Griselda? Okay, um, uh, no, thank, thank you for those uh, questions and inputs. Uh, what I'm going to do now is to get uh, all the presenters to just make some closing remarks uh, and then the uh, deputy chair uh, or, or the chair of the session, my co-chair, uh, would then uh, give the way forward. Um, I'll start with the statistician general office. Was that Matthews? I don't know if you're still with us. If you have... Uh, you could probably respond to that. Neil, Neil Rowe. Neil Rowe is, is that essay. Is it Neil Rowe? Neil Rowe. I, I'm in line, man. Mr. Rowe, if you could uh, perhaps, I hope you heard those questions. Um, yes, I respond, did. Thank you. Give yeah. an overall comment. Uh, I'm giving you three minutes. Yeah, I think I'll be quicker than that. Although that's Hi. famous last words normally. Uh, <laughs> Um, I think I heard two questions. The first one was about the definitions. Um, I think I just want to make the point that um, in the statistics um, office, um, of course, we're not necessarily using technocratic um, and, and legal definitions of, of, of these things. So as a consequence, there could be different definitions and the definitions could be um, often changed, you know, based on the data that we've got. Um, we have, however, in one of the slides that weren't shared, um, all the definitions that I did refer to were mentioned. And I merely didn't repeat them because it would have taken extra time. Secondly, um, with regards to women, uh, we tend to use sex in our surveys, um, and we don't therefore um, necessarily use the gender terms. Um, it is also the way in which we ask most of our surveys and, and the census and so forth. Um, we have found that um, Otherwise, it, it, it is, um, yeah, it's, it's, I guess it's a very difficult ground to tread, but yeah, maybe I should suffice and say that we ask sex and not, not gender in our surveys and also the census. I think those are the two questions, ma'am. Yeah, thank you. Uh, Professor Matthews. Professor Matthews, you have three minutes just to make some closing comments. Yeah, some closing comments from my side is just that I think one of the things I didn't talk about that's really pertinent to the conversation today is, um, is that we've got to 
understand that there's intersections between violence against women and violence against children. And they often, and, and I think Professor Jukes alluded to this, that children witness violence in the home. And I think the uh, service organizations have to recognize this when they see women coming in for intimate partner violence. It's, it's critical for organizations to be addressing uh, when women come in and talk about their violence for services also to recognize what's happening to children, particularly if we're wanting to address um, and prevent femicide from happening. I think it's critical that we start thinking about these intersections and how we think about smartly integrating it into our approaches right from the start. So I want to leave you with those thoughts. Thank you. Thank you for having me this afternoon. Thank you, uh, Professor Matthews. Uh, Professor Dukes and Professor... Thank you very much. I want to bring into the conversation a word that hasn't been mentioned yet, but in fact has such a massive impact on our lives these days, and that is COVID-19. Um, because this has actually, over the last 126 days, very substantially changed the way in which we live our lives and the way we, we work, and actually has paralyzed a lot of the work in this country around the prevention of um, gender-based violence. And I think it's incredibly important that we put back and run through this conversation, the theme about this that sort of life world-changing pandemic that we're living through and that we start thinking about what it means for us in terms of our work, we have to get prevention programming back on the agenda. We need to bring our social distancing and our masks and our hand sanitizers and to be able to um, get people together to talk about um, gender transformative work. We need to think about the mental health consequences of living for the last 126 days under lockdown and everything that's happened through that, as well as all of the other mental health consequences we've been talking about. We need to address the fact that in different parts of the country, there may have been an escalation of violence against women over the last few months, particularly after lockdown was reduced and when alcohol sales became more widely available and there was more social movement. And we really need to take this into account because COVID is going to be with us for years. It's not something that's just a matter of a few weeks or months, and it will profoundly impact on how we work. And we mustn't let it stop our work around trying to prevent violence against women and girls and femicide. So that's my parting message. Hi, Naima here. My uh, last few comments is just to say thank you very much for inviting us and for allowing us to share our work. Our research really is only of value if policymakers and community and activists use it. I briefly want to just talk about the issue of definitions. Um, I think because it's very critical for research that definitions are understood properly because, for example, Rape, we cannot ask women in a, um, in a research study, have you ever been raped? Rape is understood very differently for women compared to us researchers. Some people understand it to be only done by strangers. 
And that's why it's critical that we do a dedicated study on violence against women in the country. Um, and that research cannot be done. And this has been shown over the world, across the globe, that it is a study that's dedicated with special training with people and it's led by experts. And I hope that we will be doing this in the, in the future. I want to also just tell you that I have given you preliminary data on 2017 on femicide. I hope that I was not gonna tell you that there's an increase, but it does look like that. So please look out for our results as it comes out um, probably in about six, eight months time. Thank you much. Uh, thank you very much again. Yeah. Is it my turn? Yes. Oh, I can't hear. I don't know what happened to the volume. Thank you no, so I much. He's still muted, so you can continue. Okay. Thank you so much, Roshek. No, my parting short is that uh, I would just like the guests and the members to uh, pay attention to that uh, to the proposals that I've made, in particular from page page ten through to to page 14, that is where the proposals, I've pronounced them very, very well. In, in, in a nutshell, I've made a, a proposal for excluding of the option of a parole in all femicide matters, and I've also dealt with further tightening of bail releases, and I've also dealt with the, the, the amendment to factor in the, the preclusion of withdrawal of charges from prosecutors and also from the victims themselves. And I've dealt also with the, with the a necessary amendment to factor in urgent relief for GBV and femicide victims. And uh, I've also dealt with uh, the issue of human trafficking and uh, the, the issue of the decriminalization and the criminalization of selling of sex and the buying of sex in particular, I, I, I have uh, I proposed that uh, rather the, in, in, instead of decriminalization, we may look at the option of uh, criminalizing the buying part because it makes uh, a, a commodity out of women bodies and looking into the, the, the rather the decriminalization of the selling part. And uh, finally, we must also be very cautious of over-legislating because most of the time people think that legislating is the way out, but it's not really the way out because you can over-legislate criminologists are cautioning against that. And finally, when we say zero tolerance against GBV, it should be zero tolerance against the, the issue of law enforcement that is not operational. That is the zero tolerance we need now. Okay, thank you very much. Thank, thank, thank you, thank you. Ed, uh, Magano. Uh, Ms. Nichols? Thank you, Honorable Shay. Uh, my closing comment is that what is required is the effective implementation of the existing legal framework. And in order for that, we need consistency across the justice system in order to give a level of security 
to victims and survivors and women in general that the justice system works. And in order to do that, we, the only thing we need to introduce now are measures relating to transparency and accountability. And that in turn will ensure the effective implementation of our existing legislation, um, which will help ensure consistency. Thank you, uh, Mr. Nichols. Uh, Mr. Kumalo. Thank you, Chairperson. Um, whilst I support the idea of strengthening the criminal justice system uh, in response to GBV and femicides, I think we also should not take this as a magic wand. I don't think we will deal with uh, this scourge simply by the criminal justice system. I want to um, make a point that uh, we need a comprehensive response that requires combination of efforts. And the strategic plan gives us some of those frameworks. We need to also emphasize on the issue of prevention. We don't have to wait for women to be assaulted and be killed. We need to ensure that we have emphasis on issues of masculinities and dealing with the issues of patriarchy in this country. Because unless we deal with those source elements that drive this kind of behavior, we will continuously be in a revolving door. We don't have enough jails to keep perpetrators of violence against women. So we do need this combination response. Thank you. Uh, thank you very much, Mr. Uh, Kumalo. Uh, and let me also just thank all presenters once again for the uh, insightful and very useful presentation. Um, uh, Deputy Chair, uh, if I can hand over back to you, I've tried to catch up on time and I think we're on track. Thank you. Thank you very much. Uh, thank you, uh, Honorable Sheikh. I think we, we've done quite well with regards to the issue of time. We will then, after this, I will, we will give to Ms. Nita to, to just do a final uh, word of thanks for us. But I just want also to exp express my appreciation. I think I've said it in another gathering where we were together speaking on the issue of the Domestic Violence Act and uh, and the, the 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 review of this specific legislation, uh, it, it is quite clear that there is common agreement that gender-based violence, femicide, violence against women and children, we have actually all of us have a common view with regards to that, and we as we are expressing uh, a common uh, we are expressing a common uh, solution or we understand what should be the solution. But like Bafana uh, Kumalo have said, and that is the issue of implementation, but also the issue of prevention. But the, and what was also said by, by, by one of the, the professors is the issue that how do we actually coach our, our youngsters? How do we make sure that they grow into responsible adults that don't get part of these atrocities? Of, of violence and, and, and generally because I agree and I think all of us have agreed that South Africa is generally a violent society where you find uh, homicide, you find uh, violence, assault, violent assault and also the issue of alcohol abuse and, uh, and, and, and we as, 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 as parliament in our oversight responsibility, we, we have a role to play and to make sure that our legislation is effective and that it is really uh, 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 responding to the challenges that we are experiencing within our communities. Like I said before, even what we have actually 
occurred here today is just uh, uh, corroborating the, the kind of, of, of information that we are getting through our public involvement and our public engagement. So what I, what I, what I wanted to say is that I am very, very excited with the fact that we, we are able to create this kind of platforms so that we meet one another and we get together and begin to make sure that we implement a solutions-driven uh, uh, kind of response to what is facing us in, in, in the country, what is facing us in South Africa. So from here and together with the, uh, the, the next uh, engagement that we are going to have, after we have actually allowed our, our particularly our legal society uh, to work together with other stakeholders to, to, to actually present by October, November, a report around what is working and what is not working and how do we improve on what we are having. And then we will be having that kind of debate led by our security and justice uh, uh, peace and security cluster. We will have that kind of debate. And then from there, we will begin to develop a comprehensive response together with all uh, role players. And that is, uh, or stakeholders for that matter. That is what we, what we are planning. That is our way forward, but we are continuing. It's a two-pronged approach. We are continuing with our re uh, women's charter review issues, but also the other resolutions like the ones on gender-based violence and femicide is what we are going to address. And we want to make sure that the kind of engagement that we had today, we are going to continue with it. And we are also going to discuss with everyone to say uh, the time frames and also what do you think would work effectively to make sure that we change society in its totality and that we get away from our past and also what is presently prevailing even during the, the, the time of lockdown. And we address, we have a comprehensive response to this area of what we call a scourge. But after that, we at least begin to build a cohesive society where women and children and the vulnerable will feel and be safe. Because if you look at our stats, we can see there is still a lot that we need to do to make sure that we make a difference in terms of poverty, in terms of inequality, in terms of generally making sure that the, the, the socioeconomic circumstance of our, of our people is, is, is actually uh, changed or is actually addressed in a way that will make sure that we won't be seeing the very same kind of 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 of, of, of things that are happening currently it is actually very sad that we can still have a society where more than 40% of women men generally communities do not feel safe where they are because if you look at that statistics, statistics, you could see that very few people feel very safe in South Africa. And that is something that needs to be addressed. I think I will end there and give to Honorable Nguita to, to just give us a vote of thanks. Thank you very much, uh, Deputy Chair. 
Uh, let me first greet everyone who's participating in this very important debate and thank all our presenters first for the work well done. The research was quite good and the research has enabled us as legislators to, to do our oversight role because they were able to identify areas where we are weak, which I think we will take that as, as one of the constructive criticism, which helps us to focus more. And I must say, as women in South Africa, we do not take light the issue of gender-based violence and femicide. As the president of the country has already said, it is a pandemic and it needs all of us. I do not take it as a, a, a responsibility of government alone. It is a societal matter which collectively we have to work hand in hand to ensure that the legislations that are in place are able to help us to, to curb the, the, the violence against women and, and femicide. And also, I have taken note, uh, Deputy Chairperson, that there are areas where we need to strengthen our legislation. And I've also taken note of the fact that as much as we are, we are going to do those, we need not um, to over-legislate, but it is key that where there is a necessity for us to do legislation, we have to do that so that we make sure that we get rid of this cage in our country. With those few words, Deputy Chairperson, we thank you very much. All the we thank all the participants as well as all those who took their time to do research that will enable us to do our work properly. In so today it has been demonstrated that it is true. We have learned a lot and will do what is expected from us as legislatures. Thank you very much. Have a wonderful evening. Thank you very much. Just before we conclude, let me just also express our appreciation to the team that is always making it possible for us to, to gather in this fashion. And with that said and done, the meeting stands adjourned. Thank you very much. Thank you, Deputy Chair. Thank you. I love you.